Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be skate. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Hey, folks, today is Thursday, January 20th, 2022. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. Uh, Senate Democrats don't do their job, mainly because Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin choose not to end the filibuster in order to protect voting rights. Uh, also, uh, we'll talk with Cliff Albright with Black Voters Matter about what is next. Also, Joe Madison, uh, Sirius XM radio host, is, is ended his hunger strike, which was focused on, uh, again, waiting for the moment to sign this particular bill. Also uh, on today's show, uh, sad news from Delta Sigma Theta. The national president passed away today. We'll give you uh, those details. Also uh, on today's show, uh, we'll talk about a case out of Philadelphia where some cops have been charged in the death of an eight-year-old girl. Plus, you'll get the first public look at the cover of my book, White Fear, that is dropping this year. Folks, it is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is. 
Well, folks, uh, vote, after the vote last night, there is no passage of the For the People Act or the John Lewis Act uh, because uh, Senate Democrats could not get 50 votes in order to end the filibuster. Uh, just so you understand why the vote was 52 to, 40, 52 to 48, uh, it's because it allows for, by Senator Chuck Schumer, first of all, Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema, and uh, Joe Manchin, though they said they support the bills, but chose not to end the filibuster, which meant 50 votes, 48 votes. Senator Chuck Schumer has to vote, has to vote as well in order for him to bring the bill back up. And so that's why you see 5248, so you understand why the vote count uh, is what it was. Uh, so there were just a number of speeches that were given on the floor of the United States Senate uh, that were powerful, uh, that were strong from some folks like Maggie Hassan. We wouldn't even expect uh, to give that kind of speech. But, one, but of course, uh, one of the strongest uh, was from a brother who truly understands this, one of three African-Americans in the United States Senate. He represents Georgia. Uh, as a pastor, that is Senator Raphael Warnock. Here's some of his 28-minute speech, some of what he had to say last night before the vote was taken. January 6th happened, but here's the thing. January 5th also happened. Georgia, a state in the old Confederacy, sent a black man and a Jewish man to the Senate in one fell swoop. Our nation has always had a complicated history, and I submit to you that here's where we are. We're swinging from a moral dilemma. We, we are caught somewhere between January 5th and January 6th, between our hopes and our fears, between bigotry and beloved community. And in each moment, we the people have to decide which way are we going to go and what are we willing to sacrifice in order to get there. The question today is, are we going to give in to a violent attack whose aim is now being pursued through partisan voter suppression laws in state legislatures? And sadly, Georgia, the same Georgia that sent me and my brother Ossoff to the Senate, not the people of Georgia, partisan state politicians have decided to punish their own citizens for having the audacity to show up. And it isn't just about the restrictions around water and food distribution. The more fundamental question is why the line so long in the first place? And why is that the case in certain communities? I, I know that some Americans listening to me right now don't know what we mean because that's not your experience. But it is the experience of so many of your fellow Americans. We need empathy, compassion, care for one another. While local election officials working in Lincoln County, Georgia, to close all but one polling location for a county that's bigger than 250 square miles, why is the second most powerful legislator in the Georgia State Senate working right now to pass legislation to eliminate all ballot drop boxes in Georgia in the middle of a pandemic? Why are state leaders in Georgia right now working to take over the local elections board in Fulton County?
where Ebenezer Baptist Church sits. There's a woman in Cobb County named Irish. She says she's tried repeatedly over the past 10 years to vote, but could not because of long lines and changing polling locations, people playing games. She said that she has often had to decide if she will work or vote. Another woman, Verona from Cobb County, says that she waited in line for eight hours in the rain at her local library. Eight hours to vote. I run into constituents all the time who tell me that they waited for hours to vote for me. I'm honored that they vote, voted for me, but I'm sad they, that they should have to wait for eight hours. A student in Atlanta named Isabella says that she and many of her friends who could not vote in the November 2020 election because they did not want to skip class to stand in line. Why are state leaders in Georgia behaving as if giving voters these awful choices is normal or that voters like these Georgians don't exist? Those are the facts of the laws that are being passed in Georgia and across our nation. And so here's the question tonight. America, are we January 5th or are we January 6th? Are we going to give in to the forces that seek to divide us by gerrymandering us, suppressing us, and subverting the voices of some of us in pursuit of power at any cost? Or are we going to live up to that grand American covenant, e pluribus unum, out of many? One, I choose what Dr. King called beloved community. I choose America. I choose a nation that embraces all of us. We've been summoned here. We cannot turn away. And in just a few moments, all 100 of us, blessed with a sacred trust, will let the American people know where we stand on the question of whether the Senate will protect their voices, the voices of the very people who sent us here, or if we will simply surrender to the anti-democratic fervor and polarizing disunity spreading across our nation. Joining us right now is the co-founder of Black Voters Matter, Cliff Albright. Cliff, glad to have you uh, back on the show. Um, uh, it, is, it was certainly a uh, difficult night uh, for folks like yourself and others who have been fighting for voting rights, who have been in the streets, getting arrested, who have been traveling around this country, risking getting COVID, um, you know, all of these different things, going into, you know, the, the backwoods, the country parts, delivering collard greens and water, uh, just trying to get people to understand the power of the vote. Uh, and uh, to, 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 with all the work done to elect that man and John Ossoff, which gave, gave Democrats, uh, frankly, control of the United States Senate, uh, to see uh, two white U.S. senators, one from Arizona, one from West, West Virginia, 
uh, completely just ignored the reality what Republicans are doing across the country has to be frustrating. Yeah, good evening, Roland. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no sugarcoating it. Um, last night was a was a frustrating night. Um, you know, even though we we knew what those senators were saying going into it, you know, you you always hold out hope that you know maybe maybe they'll hear something that'll that'll change their thinking. Maybe they'll get some extra facts that'll change their thinking. Maybe they'll be inspired by my senator, and I'm so proud to call him my senator, Senator Warnock, um, and, and even John Ossoff, who I thought also gave a good speech. And more importantly, when, when Senator Susan Collins tried to clap back, she wasn't she wasn't ready for his response to her um, in regards to the, the Voting Rights Act. We could talk about that in a second. But um, yeah, we're just thinking that maybe they'll hear something that would uh, change their votes. But, you know, as, as we learned by the end of the night, there wasn't anything that could have been said. There was no facts. There was no history about the filibuster um, or about Senate procedures. There was no, no information about the realities of voter suppression that some of their own colleagues were telling them about their own states. There was nothing that they could have heard um, to, to change their minds. But with that said, Last night, and this isn't just, you know, a, a, a silver lining thing or a moral victory thing, you know, last night was important. Um, the fact that we even had that debate is something that was produced by movement, by, by what you were just talking about, by folks who have been in the streets and getting arrested and, and, and sending messages and texts and all of that. Um, movement made that debate even happen. Because had we not been pushing for months, then, you know, the, the, the senators, um, including Senator Schumer, may have just said, well, I tried to bring it up for a vote, and they wouldn't let us debate it. But movement made that debate happen and made them go on the record with their votes, made them have a debate and a discussion and to expose themselves. And at the end of the day, we, we think that that's something that's significant, and we're going to use this energy moving forward because the, it ain't over. Um, you know, game on, as we were, we're saying, and we're about to launch a whole nother campaign. And as you may have seen, folks were still out there protesting at the Capitol today, including Congressman Jamal Bowman who got arrested today, the, the now the sixth, I think, um, CBC member to get arrested in this battle for, for voting rights. So it was a frustrating night, and, you know, we, we need to acknowledge that and feel that, but we need to move on from that, because um, at the end of the day, you know, as I've been reminding people today, the, the, the Charner, Cheney, Goodwin, and Schwerner were, were murdered in June of 64. You know, Bloody Sunday happened in March of 65. And, and, and it took a whole other five months after Bloody Sunday and the summer of Montgomery March before the Voting Rights Act was, was passed. People think that there was a march across the bridge, and then the next day or the next week, we had a Voting Rights Act. That's not the way it worked. And so... Well, well, you know, I, well actually, actually, I think we ought to take it back even further, because I, th I think—and yeah. what you mm -hmm. just said it is important for people to understand, um, mm -hmm. to understand the continuum, if you will. You had the 15th yeah. Amendment that was passed, one of the Reconstruction mm -hmm. Amendments. And then, of course, mm -hmm. you had the great the, uh, the election of 1876, the Great Compromise of 1877, which then ushered in Jim Crow. Uh, you had uh, rights taken. You had, of course, uh, the, the, the black members of the House of Representatives who were thrown out, the last one who was from North Carolina, uh, who gave that mm -hmm. particular speech on the floor. You had black folks' rights taken in the Mississippi Constitutional Convention in 1890, where you had that 
that uh, one brother, Isaiah T. Montgomery, who voted along with the white folks to take the vote. Uh, that's why I call Senator Tim Scott a modern-day Isaiah T. Montgomery uh, because of mm -hmm. his vote last night. Then, of course, you go through the battle um, in, in the 20th century, but you go to the 1957 Civil Rights Act that was gutted. Uh, and then, of course, Kennedy runs for president in 1960, makes promises. And then you have this massive comprehensive bill. Everybody forgets that the, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, and the Fair Housing Act of 68 were actually all in one bill. And so nothing mm -hmm. happened for two years. Kennedy gets killed. LBJ says, we're going to move this forward. But he tells King, we got to break this thing up. And so then you have Civil Rights Act that comes first, public accommodations. Then you had voting rights in 65. Then you had fair housing in 68. And so uh, the, the, the black freedom movement, if you say, starts with, uh, of course, Montgomery, 1955, December 1st. And then you go through uh, the Fair Housing Act being passed nine days after King, assigned into law nine days after King assassinated. That's 13 years. Now, none of us, they want to wait 13 years, but those folks put it on the line every single day during that period. And so folks need to understand, ain't no microwave social activism. That's right. That's right. No, I'm so glad you went into that that history for a couple of reasons. One, because we got to understand now. Now it's urgent, right? We got to have a fierce urgency of now, but we also got to understand the ebbs and flow of history and where we are in this moment. And just because we didn't get what we wanted last night doesn't mean that the battle is over. And so understanding that history is important. This, the other reason I'm really glad you went into that history is because what you just described regarding the public accommodations. And voting rights and fair housing and the way that they broke that into pieces, ultimately that may be what has to happen with this this voting rights bill and the different pieces of it, because we got the gerrymandering, we got the, the 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 dark money, and you heard the Republicans really focusing on the the dark money and the, the campaign finance reform pieces um, of, of of the bill, but you got those pieces. Of course, you've got the, the restoration of the Voting Rights Act piece, um, which Susan Collins was pretending like she supports, even though she didn't vote for it when it was up a couple of months ago. And so you've got these pieces, and one of the things, one of the strategies that we may wind up pursuing is breaking down different parts of it, much the way you just described the way that those civil rights bills, including voting rights, was, was broken down in the 60s. Well, the other thing is that, and, and I've, been, I've been saying this uh, to folks as well, um, and because I, I think people also need to be fully aware uh, and, and understand how these things are interlocked. So you, so you take, uh, you take what happened last night. Uh, this right here. Uh, if y'all, if y'all, uh, you're not seeing my computer, folks. Uh, okay. All right. Let me see if I can get this up because I, I need people to understand why these elections matter, why who we put in office um, matters. Um, this was, and I'm trying to pull it up right now, uh, and so we're going to try to get it going. But, but last night, Sherry Beasley uh, posted uh, this statement right here uh, on her Twitter feed. And for folks who don't know who that is, she's the former Supreme Court Justice uh, of North Carolina. Uh, and then she uh, posted this. Guys, come on, go to it. Thank you. Today, Washington has failed us. In this moment, the failure to stand up for our fundamental constitutional right to vote turns back the tide while our democracy is under attack. And so she lays all these things. But this is what she says in the end. If I were in the Senate today, I would vote for the Freedom to Vote Act and John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to ensure we don't pass this fight on to future generations. She's running for United States Senator. 
Richard Burr, of course, who's been, frankly, abusing his office with his stock trades, he's retiring. She is running for the United <laughs> States Senate. She lost in 2020 by 400 votes in North Carolina. Folks, do the math. Cinema Mansion last night it was 50-48 because one of those senators, Republican, Burr, voted with Republicans. If Sherry Beasley is the United States senator next year, if she wins and is sworn in, then all of a sudden now you're looking at 50-49. Mandela is one of the folks who's running, who's lieutenant governor in Wisconsin. He's running for the Democratic nomination to face Senator Ron Johnson, who is wildly, wildly unpopular. If Ron Johnson gets taken down, now all of a sudden, it's flipped. You don't need cinema and mansion. Then, of course, uh, you have Pennsylvania. Toomey is retiring. And so we don't know who Malcolm Kenyatta is running, Lieutenant Governor, who, uh, who's running, you know who wins that. You win that, but even with, even with mansion and cinema, you're now over the line. Val Demings is a Congressman Val Demings, woman's, Congressman Val Demings is running there uh, in uh, Florida. Charles Booker is running there in Kentucky. Then, of course, you have the open seat in Ohio. Democrats hold the line in Nevada and Georgia in those seats. They literally could have 53, 54 votes. And so people need to be then recalibrating. So black folks are watching right now pissed off. You should be donating to Sherry Beasley. If you're in North Carolina, you should be saying, how am I going to be getting my folks to go out there and vote? Because, again, it's understanding the dynamics of politics and how this thing could be totally different uh, in, in January or February based upon who controls the Senate. Yeah, you know, you're exactly right, uh, Roland. Um, I'll, I'll even throw in there, this is this is a more, perhaps a more longer-term issue, but, you know, if, if D.C. had statehood, <laughs> then we'd have another two yes. senators yes. that we wouldn't we wouldn't have to mess around with Manchin and, and Cinema, right? And so shout-out for D.C. statehood. But you're exactly right. There's a number of key battles going on. Most of those states that you named are states that we're, we're active in or we've at least got some partners in. And, and yes, we need to be, you know, I don't, I don't ever want to give, and especially as the, the battle for the voting rights bills were still going on, didn't want to give credence to this notion of, oh, well, we're just going to go out and register some more folks, right? And, and you know, vote blue no matter who and work your butt no matter what and all that, you know, but we, we do have to start having those conversations. Um, and that's why, you know, we're, we're about to launch some campaigns that are, that are rooted in acknowledging that we got to still walk into gum. We got to continue to fight this battle for the voting rights legislation, but we also got to go out there and win some extra seats and um, so that we don't have to deal with Mansion and Cinema. And then when they come up, you best believe that we're going to be out there in Arizona and West Virginia to, um, to deal with our, our good friends in those two, those two states. But, um, and and, and yeah, must hold the line in Georgia. Warnock is on and the ballot. Ossoff got won a six-year term. Uh, sure. Warnock filled the expired term of Johnny Isaacson, uh, Republican, who passed away. And so, got to hold the line in Georgia. That's right. And, and that's one of the things I've been saying whenever people ask about the enthusiasm gap, you know, which is real, to be clear. Like, you know, you know black folks aren't going to be happy if, if we don't get some stuff delivered, some more stuff delivered for us, whether it's voting rights or criminal justice reform. It was quite a thing to watch Tim Scott and Cory Booker going after each other after Tim Scott wasted everybody's time for a year pretending like they were going to pass some, some George Floyd Act or some, oh, some no, police reform. You know what? You know, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I want to interrupt you there because... Mm -hmm. uh, because I, and I told folks, so Michael Harriet, when he was with The Root, 
wrote a particular piece last year uh, in not not last year in 2000 in 2020 where he talked to Tim Scott's deputy chief of staff who actually said that that that, that part of the bill they were advancing would withhold or take funds from police in the places where they did not pass laws to deal with police deal with police brutality. Now, here's what's interesting. When Tim Scott went on Face the Nation to Margaret uh, Brennan talking about, oh, D Democrats want to defund the police, and that was just a bridge too far, I then email, I then text message him and said, mm -hmm. can you explain me the difference between what you proposed last year and what you're accusing Democrats of? That was on October 27th. I sent him the text mm -hmm. again last night. He, now mind you, he was responding to my other text messages about read the bill, read the bill. But when I brought up his own bill that, that showed he was a hypocrite, no response. I emailed his staff again yesterday saying, why haven't y'all answered me in two and a half months when your own deputy chief of staff said the exact same thing that Scott's now accusing Democrats of? Complete, total silence. That shows you how fraudulent they are and how fraudulent he was wasting the times of all of those families who were there fighting for, uh, fighting for rights. He never intended for the George Floyd Justice Act to go forward. It was all a charade, and that's why I call Senator Tim Scott a modern-day Isaiah T. Montgomery. And, and, and he's up this year, right? And so, you know, people aren't expecting to put as much attention into South Carolina as some of the other states that we went to, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Georgia. No, go, and, yeah, and go, go ahead, go ahead. So, yeah, but, but, but he's up. And so, you know, we're, we're going to be doing a lot of work in, in South Carolina because we believe that, you know, any time you got the kind of population black population that you got in, in a state like South Carolina, you know, we got the ability to make some stuff happen. You know, we always got to go out and get that, that, that magical percentage of, of white folks that are willing to come along with us. But, hell, if they can pass medical marijuana in Mississippi, I'm believing we can do anything in, in South Carolina. So he's up. So there's a, a number of races that, you know, we need to be targeting. And, and when we talk about the enthusiasm gap, you know, although it's a real thing, you know, the, the key thing to think about is it's not a national enthusiasm gap, right? It's, it's kind of like what we say about Congress, like Congress has historically low approval ratings, and yet you still see that 95% yep. Of, of incumbents still win re-election. Re Why is that? Because even when people are frustrated or unhappy with Congress, they don't attach that necessarily to their person, right? And so what, what we may wind up seeing, and Georgia's a perfect example, even black folks that are upset with Biden or, Democrat, or, or Democrats in the Senate, we're not upset with Warnock, right? We know that he was out there fighting. And so you might not see the same lack of enthusiasm someplace like Georgia as you might in some other states, like, like say, a Delaware, where I don't, I don't know if there were senators up for, you know, Carper and Coons, but they, they didn't fight like Warnock. And so there would be a bigger enthusiasm right. gap there than you would see in some place like Georgia. Uh, this is video we're showing right now of Congressman Jamal Bowen getting arrested today. Uh, you referenced that uh, earlier, so I wanted to uh, definitely show that. Um, it, it is, it is, you know, you, you've made the point consistently, uh, Cliff, uh, that you cannot out-organize voter suppression. Uh, yesterday, uh, guys, if y'all have that clip of, of President Joe Biden, uh, let me know if y'all have the clip uh, where he admitted uh, that, frankly, he has not communicated enough uh, to uh, African Americans. Um, and the, the, the thing here is this White House, the Democratic Party, 
um, their messaging, I was, look, Frank, has been terrible, okay? I, I don't understand how in the hell you pass a $2 trillion bill and you don't know how to explain to people what the hell is in it. I mean, that just makes no sense to me whatsoever. Um, but the point that you made is they're going to they're gonna have to deliver. Uh, one of the things that President Biden said after uh, Scott scuttled the George Floyd Justice Act was they're going to be moving forward with executive orders. I'm sitting there going, what the hell happened? They should have done that literally the next week after uh, he did that. You don't sit here and wait three, four months. No, you jump on it immediately. That's the sort of action that th there has to be far more sense of urgency uh, from this party, and it can't come in August and September. It needs to happen now. Yeah, it needs to happen now. It needs to happen yesterday. Truth be told, that could have happened. He didn't even have to wait for the, the George Floyd Act to fall apart. He could have done that on January 21st, January 22nd of 2021 when he came in. He could, he could have done the executive orders now on that. So you're exactly right. It's past time for some of those, some of those executive orders, whether that's on uh, policing or student loan debt, which, to be clear, is a racial justice issue, you know, uh, dealing with student loan debt and debt cancellation can have an immediate impact on the racial wealth gap. And so, you know, there are some actions that he can take that might help deal with um, whether or not there's going to be a lack of enthusiasm am amongst black voters. You know, but at the end of the day, uh, regardless of what we're going to do, they're, they're going to have to get something passed because, you know, we've, we've still got to deal with the attacks on drop boxes. Now you got this fool, uh, uh, Purdue. Uh, talking about, um, and not just him, he's just piggybacking on DeSantis, talking about um, election police, you know, it's so, uh, which he doesn't even have the constitutional authority to do in Georgia, right? But but it, they're still going to talk about it, and they're still going to try it. You got DeSantis putting out his own maps. You got a governor in Florida putting out redistricting maps. That ain't your job. Stay in your lane, right? But, but again, this is all a part of the voter suppression that we're seeing. And so we're going to do what we need to do to, to talk to our folks and focus on our issues and, and mobilize folks. But we've got to, we still, I'm still saying it, we still got to get them. They can't move on um, to this so-called Electoral Count Act. You may have heard some of that yep, discussion, yep, yep. right? That they just trying to act like that's a substitute for, for voting rights. That's not a substitute. That would be like, and I shared this the other day on Martin Luther King Day, that would be like LBJ telling Dr. King or Congress telling Dr. King, you know what, Dr. King, we can't, we're, we can't pass this Voting Rights Act right now that you want to get passed. But let me tell you what we're going to do for you. We're going to pass an act that says after they finish uh, uh, keeping you from registering, after they finish giving you literacy tests, after they finish making you count the jelly beans, after they finish closing your polling places, after all is said and done and they send us the election results, we're going to make sure that those results get uh, confirmed and certified as it was sent to us by the state. That would have been insulting to Dr. King, and that's insulting to us today. The Electoral Count Act is not voting rights. Repeat, the Electoral Count Act is not voting rights. It is not a replacement for restoring the 1965 Voting Rights Act. It's not a replacement for, for guaranteeing uh, days of early voting and vote by mail and making Election Day a national holiday. So they still need to fight. And we're still going to fight and do what we need to do to get those things passed, even if it's in pieces, as you described earlier. But we need that to go along with the mobilization that we're going to be doing as we try to target some of these states up and down the ticket, from Senate on down to local races, because at the end of the day, uh, we, need the, we need these school board seats 
just as much as we need these Senate seats, because yep. we all know what's going on at the, at the school board level. Indeed. Cliff Albright, co-founder of Black Voters Matter. Uh, you know we always have with you, and so uh, let, let's get it on in 2022. All right, game on. Yes, indeed. It ain't over. I appreciate it. Thanks, sir. All right, folks, uh, let's uh, go to my panel right now. Uh, Greg Carr, Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. Reese Colbert, Black Women's Views. Also Faraji uh, Muhammad, uh, host of uh, upcoming show on uh, the, of course, Black Star Network. Uh, Greg as well. Greg will be doing the Black Table. Uh, I saw the uh, first cut today. Looks great. Uh, and uh, Faraji's uh, For the Culture with Faraji Muhammad. Uh, and so, again, that'll be upcoming. I uh, want to show y'all this here. This has been making the rounds on the social media. So Senator Mitch McConnell was asked this question, and this is how he responded. Uh, what, what's your message for voters of color who are concerned that without the John L. Lewis Voting Rights Act, they're not going to be able to vote in the midterm? Well, the concern is misplaced, because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. A recent survey, 94% uh, of Americans thought it was easy to vote. Uh, this is not a problem. Turnout is up, biggest turnout since 1900. Uh, it, it's simply they're being sold a, a, a bill of goods to support a democratic effort to federalize elections as Senator Black. Hmm. Roll that top again. <laughs> well, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. A recent survey. Did, uh, did something happen, Reese? Um, are, are you an American? Last I checked, I was. Faraj, I'm just saying, are, are, are you an American? We're here. Okay, Greg. Here. I, Greg, I don't, uh, Greg, I don't know about you. Well, I, don't I, ask Greg. Don't ask Dr. Carr. Dr. Uh, Carr, <laughs> you know where Oh, no. Don't ask me. I, I, it, <laughs> it, it, but see, it, it, it's a, and, and the thing, the thing there, uh, Reese, we it, one all the BS because I love it. When, oh no, 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 they're, they're voting, uh, you know, at, you know at, at the same rates. No, that's not true. Uh, and again, they love, they love to cite that. Oh, this poll and that poll. Yeah, but but whatever the poll, ninety-four percent of Americans. Yeah, show me that poll. Oh, I'm sorry, maybe that that was a, the poll, ninety-four percent of white folks. <laughs> well, you know, he's revealing what we all know that when white people talk about people, they're talking about white people. Right. And everybody else has to have the hyphenate in front of it. And it's interesting that he didn't say African Americans. He just said African American voters and then Americans. So he just basically said, well, we all know that we're other to this country, even though we literally built this country. But at the end of the day, we the fact that we vote and the numbers that we do is not evidence that the system is working. It's evidence that we are going to go through hell or high water to vote. And the reality is, and I know this is not going to be the most popular thing to say, but they're suppressing just as many, if not more, white voters than they are black voters. Yep just to stop some black folks from voting in places like Detroit, 
and in and, um, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and in Georgia, because as Vice President Kamala Harris has been saying, the voter suppression bills that they've put in place are going to impact 55 million Americans. And before it's a million of us. So obviously it's going to hit a whole lot more people than just black folks. And so they're willing to sacrifice the conveniences of uh, some white folks because they feel like they can make up for it by ginning them up with all of these racial dog whistles or bullhorns about CRT and caravans and radical Islamists and defund the police or whatever kind of bullshit they're going to spring up for 2022. And they know that on the flip side, they're going to make it structurally impossible for so many Black, Latino, Native American, and even disabled and student communities to vote. And so that's what this is all about. But the white supremacy is really the root of all of these initiatives. It's the root of the obstruction. And it doesn't matter if it's Mitch McConnell saying it and it or versus Kristen Sinema or Joe Manchin. They all playing for the same white nationalist team and for the same white minority rule. Because this isn't just about 2020, 2022. Right. This is about the next generation uh, of wanting to enshrine white minority rule when uh, the demographics uh, shift against them. I get a kick out of uh, the, oh, no, no, everybody's voting. But, Faraji, okay, fine, y'all had to wait six hours. Okay, fine, you had to wait eight hours. So that's sort of like saying, look, why y'all tripping? Y'all still got to eat even though you had to go to the kitchen? Right. I mean, right. I mean just because you didn't sit down at the counter, I mean, you still got the food out the back, out, out the back window, but you ate. And that's the problem right there. And I, and I think, Brother Roland, we, we got to keep something in mind that how serious of a situation what happened last night really is to constitutional democracy. Here's a 230-year country we, that is built on the idea of representation from the people through the voting process. And so what we just saw last night was a major blow to that foundation. And, you know, there are people across this country that are looking and are wondering are we teetering or are we right there at the brink of civil war? Dr. Gerald Horn, who is uh, the um, professor of history and African studies out of the University of Houston, he made the point that, that we are at that point at this point. He said that when you look at it, he said it's going to be very difficult to, to change the tide against, you know, getting this voting bills passed. He said you have scholars who are talking about the United States on the verge of civil war. He said... In some ways, the situation in the United States is either spinning out of control or has spun out of control. So we're looking at a situation like this. Reese talked about those voter suppression bills, uh, laws. The Brennan Center for, uh, for Justice, which is a public policy institute out of New York, um, NYU, they say 400 laws have been introduced in 49 states restricting voter access. What is going to happen when people go to the polls and they can't go to the polls or they're restricted or the ballot boxes aren't there or they get, there's some sort of limitation, the, 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 the United States government, the government leaders are playing games with our lives. Because why? If voting is supposed to be the most easiest way to participate in this democracy, and you can't say that this, at this point in time that people aren't already dissatisfied you are going to essentially 
destroy, and I will go as far as to say to cultivate domestic terrorists against the United States government. Well, what you're because dealing... people people aren't going to be feeling like they're going to be seen or heard, well, or that their will is going to be uh, fulfilled. Well, again, what you, what you're dealing with here is that the old way. Uh, was to simply firebomb churches, blow up houses, and intimidate black people, threaten them to lose their jobs. What they're, right. doing, what they're doing here, Greg, is they're doing, as a, as a federal court rule, surgical precision in terms of how they're able to attack. They're studying, mm, I'm going to change this and change this. That's what they're doing. And so the Republicans in Congress are saying, hey, everything is fine. Hey, we see what they're doing on the state level. Y'all keep going. Hey, we don't see what the whole deal is, which, also, which says also uh, to our folks, we'll be talking with uh, Black Lives Matter uh, leader uh, coming up next. It says to our folks why we can't just focus on what's happening here in the nation's capital. You know, we're just two blocks from the White House, a few blocks from the Capitol. You better be focused on what's happening in your state capital because that's where they have been really creating the most havoc. That's, that's exactly right. And by the way, Roland, I love the fact that you repping Tennessee State Tigers, man. I know that's one of the many excuses <laughs> that is shown. So well, I know Dr. Well, well, when I'm, wear, I'm, I'm wearing a hoodie, I'll, I'll explain a little bit later because uh, we, in honor of Alpha Phi Alpha, it's 115th anniversary, uh, I partnered with McDonald's to create seven scholarships worth 15000 each for HBCU juniors and seniors. Uh, I'll explain more about that later, but go ahead. Okay, yeah. Well, you've been saying you were going to do that, man. Y'all pay attention. This is why you support the Black Star Network. Roland is as good as his word. He's been saying that for years. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love Mitch McConnell. He's an unreconstructed white nationalist, clan adjacent. And my response to him would be uh, the end of this month, I think the 25th of January is the filing deadline. Uh, Charles Booker, 2022, break Rand Paul's whole spine. That's the response. You don't, you know, Stevie Wonder said it best in, in his song, Superstition, when you believe in things you don't understand, you suffer. So uh, mm. to me, asking anyone whether there's American is a, they are American or not is, is a trick question. There's no such thing as an American. I'm an American citizen. I have a passport. I can vote. And so that's the issue. And, and I think while you walk, while, as you walked Cliff through that history, it's very important to understand this, the federal constitution of the United States of America was set up to prevent majority rule. And at the time, people of African descent were not included. This mess started to fall apart as you began to walk uh, Cliff through those Civil War amendments with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. When you included people of African descent in something we were never supposed to be included in, it began to upset the balance. For a brief moment, there was an off-balance moment when there glimpsed a possibility of maybe something like, what did Senator Warnick say? Uh, a nation that embraces all of us. Because he said, I choose America. And then he said, I choose a nation that embraces uh, all of us. And I understand why he had to say it, because he got to win uh, re-election uh, so that you don't have a brain-damaged bulldog join uh, Coach Tuberville from uh, neighboring Alabama and become the, the literal dumbest senator in the damn United States Senate. So I understand why Warnock had to say that, but them two different things, bro. You say you choose America, what is that? And then you say, I choose a nation that embraces all of us. That, that thing has never existed. But from 1865 to 1875, as you, as you walk clip through, there was a glimpse of possibility, and then the North made a deal with the South. In exchange for the giving them home rule in the South, they told them, just don't leave the Union, and they didn't. 
So we had to fight a second reconstruction as you've always walked us through. And from 1955 to 1965, we performed radical surgery on the United States. And as you always walk us through, when Martin King's last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos of Community, when he laid down the blueprint for what to do, well, their response since then has been a long period of what Dylan Rodriguez and others call white reconstruction. So now the patient is terminal because after all that time, the, the population has been shifting. So this is where I end. We have to now go to war. Stop talking this craziness. I understand why Warnick said what he said, but Cory Booker still up here with this foolishness like we, 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 there ain't no we, bruh. You know what you need to do in Kentucky? The president of Kentucky State University, the University of Kentucky, we got all them black ball players. You make election, you close your school. When, 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 when Raphael Warnick says skipping class, they didn't want to skip class to have to make them that awful choice, Bruh, don't you remember the students from Spelman and Clark and in Morehouse and Morris yeah. Brown and the ITC yeah. who not only skipped school, left school altogether and went down, got their ass beat and fought back in them lunch counters. You got to go to war now. That means that you have a sleep in at all these community centers and churches the night before the election. Then you go out there and feed everybody five miles from the place and you get prepared to stay out there for two or three days. These are your open ass enemies. Stop acting like standing in line for six to 12 hours is a damn sacrifice and call these people who they are. Break their damn backs. Y'all gotta stop talking different. They, you're talking a language they don't understand, bro. It's time to have some bass in your voice I, now. I, I, may at, at, I may in the next uh -huh. hour, I may have to play play uh, mm -hmm. that commentary I did in the first year of Trump. This means war for people yeah. to understand where we are. We, I got to go to a break. We come back. We're going to bring in uh, one of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement into this conversation. We're going to also talk about Biden's news conference yesterday, his first year, uh, all of that. That's next right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. I'm Angie Stone. Hi, I'm Teresa Griffin. Oh, Roland. <laughs> hey, Roland. I am so disappointed. Welcome back to Roland Martin Unfiltered. Not sure what happened uh, there, uh, but uh, we'll uh, get that whole thing uh, sorted out. Um, folks, the... Um, Yesterday, President Joe Biden held a news conference where uh, it was his, of uh, course, uh, one-year anniversary uh, of his um, 
of uh, first year. And uh, longest news conference in presidential history, uh, about 90 minutes. Actually, it was pretty interesting because, you know, so many people loved, loved to ask the question. Uh, saying, why is he taking so long and what's going on? And he has no stamina. I, well, hell, he stood there and took all those you. questions. All right, this question was asked yesterday. Listen to this. Voting rights and the struggles you've had to unify your own party around voting rights. Unity was one of your key campaign promises. In fact, in your inaugural address, you said your whole soul was in bringing America together, uniting our people. People heard the speech that you gave on voting rights in Georgia recently, in which you described those who are opposed to you to George Wallace and Jefferson Davis, and some people took exception to that. What do you say to those who were offended by your speech, and is this country more unified than it was when you first took office? Number one, anybody who listened to the speech, I did not say that there were going to be a George Wallace or a Bull Connor. I said we're going to have a decision in history that is going to be marked just like it was then. You either voted on the side, not didn't make you George Wallace or didn't make you Bull Connor. But if you did not vote for the Voting Rights Act back then, you were voting with those who agreed with Connor, those who agreed with, with, and, and so, and I, I think Mitch did a real good job of making it sound like I was attacking them. If you notice, I haven't attacked anybody publicly, any senator, any 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 congressman, publicly, and my disagreements with them have been made to them communicate to them privately or in person with them. Uh, my desire still is, look, I underestimated one very important thing. I never thought that the Republicans, like for example, I said they got very upset. I said there are 16 members of the present United States Senate who voted to extend the Voting Rights Act. Now, they got very offended by that. It wasn't an accusation, just stating a fact. What has changed? What happened? What happened? All right, uh, Ashley Woodward Henderson is with the Movement for Black Lives uh, from D.C. She joins us right now. Uh, there were else if I can play, I'm gonna play it a little bit later. Um, um, but, but the thing I thought of was interesting yesterday, um, and, and we keep always say this all the time, listen to black people. Uh, Biden remarked that, that he underestimated the obstruction of Republicans. And I'm like, you don't remember eight years when you were vice president with Obama? You don't, like, black people tried to tell you this. Great. They had no intention on moving forward with any policy whatsoever. And during the campaign, he kept talking as if, oh, no, you know, stuff is going to change, not Trump. Uh, we were like, no, nah, player. No, it's not. No, no. And I mean, you in particular know more than most that not only did we tell him that when he was vice president, people have been telling that since he got into Congress. Um, the confusion isn't that voting rights somehow is divisive in a U.S. context. In fact, the thing that is divisive in a U.S. context is making voting rights a partisan issue in the first place, right? White supremacy is divisive. Uh, he can't even have the, the gumption to say unequivocally that voting against voting rights is actually a racist endeavor and stick to it. 
um, just shows us that, you know, we've got a lot of work to do before we see this battle won around voting rights, among other things. It was also um, interesting. First of all, I, I, I'm sick of all these, these punk-ass media people. You know, they were like, oh, my God, it was too long. Or, oh, my God, you know, he sounded like Reagan, you know, at the end of his term. I mean, like, okay, don't sit, don't sit here and complain about not having a news conference. Then your bitch thing is too long. Oh, because when he had it, okay? It was an opportunity to actually ask questions and hear from him uh, on, on a variety of issues. One of the things that um, he, he, he did criticize Obama when he said, hey, he went to Obama and they did not take a victory lap when it came to some of the major bills uh, that they actually passed. Well, they're actually doing the exact same thing. Again, I hear people, when I see these polls, people say, oh, my God, the, the economy. This, I saw Gianna Caldwell, saw like an idiot on Fox News saying, the economy today is worse than it was in 2008. You, you mean we were losing 500,000 jobs a month? Dude, just stop it. But... They, I, they do have to actually explain what the hell you passed, who it helps, as opposed to allowing the process story to reign supreme in D.C. That's true. I mean, and also don't count us out, right? We're not stupid. People remember getting stimulus checks. People remember child tax credits. People remember those things. But what we're also not confused by, Unc, is that those are platinum band-aids. Right. On the gaping wounds that people are facing at the convergence of the multiple crises that we're seeing in grassroots communities all across this country, particularly in the South. And y'all know I'm, I'm, you know, particularly, I'm a Southern supremacist. I believe that as goes the South, so goes the nation. Isn't just an opinion, it's a fact, right? What we know is that down here in places like Georgia and Florida, Tennessee, Texas, North Carolina, South Carolina, that we're seeing all of these states, uh, their governors, their legislative branches attack voter rights. We are seeing it over and over again. And what we're hearing from Biden is that we should just settle for the platinum band-aids that he's given us through executive orders or the idea that just because he generally supports voting rights that we should calm down, right? It's, I hear Nina Simone singing too slow to me, right? <laughs> that we're asking for too much too quickly when actually what we've demanded is actual transformation of the systems that we've inherited. Um, what we've gotten is very minimal response and a lot of work. It's not that we're confused about the new nuance of the words he's using, uh, we are aware what we want is actually what we demanded. We didn't demand justice in policing. We demanded the, the People's Response Act. We demanded the Breathe Act, the Build Back Better Act. We are demanding the John Lewis Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. We are very clear about what we want. And we've been clear with Biden and we've been clear with, with the folks in Congress. Um, and it's time for them to put up considering we risked our lives to usher them in to these positions of power. I want to bring the panel in here. Um, Reese, I'll go to you. Uh, your thoughts on Biden's first year uh, and weigh in on uh, this conversation. Well, first of all, shout out to Vice President Kamala Harris. I don't know if I don't say it, nobody else is going to say it. So shout out to Vice President Kamala Harris on a successful first year, a historic first year. Um, I do think actually people have a very short memory. And I think that right now people, um, you know, they have these different... Um, you know, silos that people are mostly concerned about. Some of them are manufactured based on social media, like hashtag cancel student debt. I don't give a damn about nothing about student debt uh, other than that. And so I do think that um, Biden and Harris have been shortchanged in terms of the just unequivocal quantitative um, data 
um, that shows a successful first year, unless we just don't have any measure that we describe success at that's that's objective. I mean, unemployment is down to 3.9%. Wages are up and also inflation is up, but that's a result of the pandemic. Um, we also have seen 5 million people gain health care. We saw um, 6 million, I believe 6 million jobs added um, just in 2020. One. So, I mean, there are a lot of just objectively good things that have happened, and that's not even talking about the way that child poverty was cut in half, particularly for black children as a result of the child tax credit, the kind of work that Vice President Kamala Harris did around black maternal mortality, as well as emphasizing blood removal, which is something that disproportionately impacts us. And so I can go on talking about the judges, the record number of black judges that Biden appointed. He recently appointed two black people to are nominated to the Federal Reserve, which is the first black woman in history ever nominated for that, and only the fourth black man nominated. That was Dr. Um, Cole or Dr. Clark and Dr. Jefferson out of over 100 nominees. And so we see that the institution, the executive branch, is being uh, transformed in a way that we haven't seen in a very quick fashion. But the problem is that people want more yesterday. Instead of realizing that this is a four-year term, we have a divided Congress that is relentless in its obstruction in terms of the Republicans. And then you have two wishy-washy Democrats who are not up for a vote um, for several more years. So there really isn't any kind of electoral leverage that you have over them. And Majority Leader Chuck Schumer hasn't cracked the code on how to deal with them. So as far as complaints about Biden's uh, performance, you know, it, people have to have a news story. They have to pounce on whatever little gotcha moments that they have. But I'm looking at the substance of what has been accomplished, and I'm looking beyond the the, the games and the and the punditry and the opinions, and I'm just looking at what's on paper. And I understand that doesn't line up with people's feelings and their perceptions, but you have to have something that you're using to base um, a measurement on. And he's getting held to a different standard than even Donald Trump was. Actually, so um, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, actually, so what what do you want to see in this second year? Because here's what here's what we're dealing with. Um, a president, an incumbent president typically loses seats in a midterm election. Republicans are literally gerrymandering themselves into a majority. The Senate is 50-50. So this point next year, this point next year, Republicans could very well control the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. That means that this may be Biden, this might be his last shot at driving policy. What do you want to see this president focus on in this year, in 2022? Yeah, I think you made the point, brother. What we need is voting rights. And the idea that this is something that we expect in, in a short order, that it's asking for too much, it's a fake fight about whether or not Biden did or did not do anything in the first term, we, or in the first year of his first term. We know that he has. That's not the question. The question is, we've been in a centuries-old fight around our participation in the democratic process. And what we've been sold is that being able to participate in voting is actually critical because it helps decide who governs, right? And if we can't actually unequivocally participate in the voting process, then how are we going to be able to decide that more than just the GOP have a say about what the policy interventions in this country will be? 
that is not something new and it's not like a particularly revolutionary demand, right? This is actually just asking to participate in a neoliberal experiment around democracy. Um, and I think that that is actually really, really critical to get over the hump of. Uh, what is also real is that movements, social movements and grassroots communities all across this country have said that we don't want to pick off important issues that are impacting people's intersectional lives, um, things around policing, things around immigration, around the economy, around infrastructure, around climate and other things. But what is real is that if we do not get something around voting rights, even as Cliff said, even if we have to break the bill down and get it passed in smaller ways, if we don't do that, then our ability to be able to move progressive policy and get elected people who are actually from and of our communities that see a progressive movement forward and electoral justice bending the moral arc of the universe towards justice, I think we're in for a world of hurt by the midterms in the next presidential. Greg, your, assess yeah, Greg, your assessment first year, what do you want second year? Well, I agree. I agree with Ashley. I think um, you really laid it out, sis. My substance of the first year is pretty much like that 59% of uh, folk who were polled by NBC. And by the way, shout out to Kristen Welker for, I know she's got a job she has to do, but to ask that question is utterly absurd. Yes, Joe Biden's a white man. He ain't got no other country to go to. So yeah, you're going to talk about unifying. But then for her to ask him a question like that's a real question, you're not going to unify something that has never been together. It's not fractured. It was never together. Joe Biden lives in a delusional world, so I understand why she had to ask that delusional question. But I expect in that NBC poll, 59% of those folks said that uh, the presidency is going as expected. And yes. Why? Ashley just laid it out. We can count. Everybody know that that cosplay coal miner out of West Virginia is a wholly owned subsidiary of, of his owners. And everybody knows that that uh, Toonie Loon in, in, in Arizona is a wholly owned subsidiary of her donors. We can count. We knew there wasn't going to be no legislation passed. So what I expect for the next coming year now, and, and, and you know, it reminds me, we are back now in terms of our attitude. We need to take the attitude of the 1940s and 50s. Remember the first SNCC not Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, but the Southern Negro Youth Conference, which met in South Carolina at Benedict College, and W.E.B. Du Bois gave a famous speech called Behold the Land. And Ashley, you just hit it again, sis. Du Bois told those young people in the first SNCC, the future of the Negro is in the South. It's time to get everybody registered to vote. It's time to bust them out from the inside, and then you got to overwhelm them. But you got to stop acting like you live in a country where these people have an agreement. There's only one side fighting right now. And That's you're right. right, Roland. This is ignorance. Reese, you said it. Now, I'll end with this. These you, you, Reese is laying out the facts. But as you said, Ashley, it ain't about the facts. These people don't give a damn. Tim Scott will lie to his face. Mitch McConnell's an unrestricted, unreconstructed white supremacist. They don't give a damn about the facts. All they care about is P-O-W-E-R. So stop trying to talk to them and break their backs. That's it. Mm. Faraji, weigh in. I think that the uh, the first year of the president has been, you know, it has its highs and its lows. I mean, one of the big things that I think we need to look at is something that we've talked about here on this show, Brother Roland and family, the fact that the president has um, gotten 41 federal circuit and district court judges confirmed by the Senate. That's just one. You know, I think that's a certainly a, a And a, a whole of lot of black women. And a whole lot of black women. We've talked about that extensively. So we can't overlook that. Um, but, you know, when we also look at the, the, the economy, 
you know, you have a lot of people that are, have gone back to work. 6.4 million people have found jobs in, in, you know, over this first year of the president's term. Um, when you're talking about, you know, like Reese said, the economy is moving forward in terms of the country moving forward. But here's the thing. None of that is being felt by the American people and most, most importantly, black folks in this country. None of that is being felt because why? President Biden stood on the grounds of the Capitol on January 20th, 2021, and said that he was going to move this country in a different direction. Now, I think that as much as we're having this conversation about what he has done, we have to ask the question, well, what are we doing to make mm -hmm. a new reality for this country? We cannot have this unrealistic expectation that this one man with a few people in his administration, with a black woman by his side, is going to change the tide of the destiny of this country in one year. That's not going to happen. I mean, let's keep that real. So this is also the time that I think we need to stop sitting on our damn hands and get up and do something for ourselves, our families, and our communities, whether you're black or white. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that we have to get more engaged. And one of the things you asked Brother Roland about, you know, what do I want to see? I want to see black folks I want to see policy dedicated for black folks actually getting passed for black folk. I mean, I... Like, no, no, hold on, hold on. Like what? No, 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 hold on. No, no, wait, wait, wait. Like what? Like what? George Floyd uh, Police Act. Can we get something with that? We talked about voting rights. We still haven't talked... We, we, we dealt with that. So we still got to deal with the George Floyd Policing Act. I don't know where that's going to, when that's going to happen. Let's talk about again, 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 again. The, here's yeah. the, here's the issue that you face, and everything you're talking about, understand. But this is the issue that we still have to deal with, Ashley. Unless they craft something that picks up ten Republican votes, they are not going to end the filibuster. It is abundantly clear. Manchin made it perfectly clear yesterday. Cinema made it perfectly clear. So this is now where we are. Where we are now is, and I agree on George Floyd. I agree uh, on, on voting. But if you cannot get 10 votes in the conversation, so now what do we do? Yeah, I mean, one is that we would hope that there'd be more organizing, right? The people have to recognize yep. that, that actually just lobbying uh, in, a, in a Congress that is in this stalemate isn't the only tactic in our in our tactical toolbox, right? We And Roland, you call us to do these things all the time, not only just to show up on the Hill to lobby and advocate for ourselves, but to organize and base bill, to use the direct action. You know, it's interesting to hear people call for the demand of, of creating policy by and for black people. The Movement for Black Lives did that. We developed the Vision for Black Lives policy platform. We had state, local, and federal demands. The People's Response Act from Cori Bush is literally an offshoot of the Breathe Act that was written by black people who were listening to the 25 million people that were in the streets in 2020 that were demanding the reinvestment of our tax dollars into building healthy, sustainable, and equitable communities. Folks have been in the streets around the Thrive Agenda. Folks have been fighting for a red, black, and green New Deal. That is not, like, to say that the fix is for uh, regular, smegular people who are living at the nexus of the converging crises of COVID, an economic crisis, 
uh, understanding that white supremacist violence is very, very real in the places that many of us live and that we are still showing up and showing out, including fighting for voting. Right, Black Lives Matter, the, the 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 Black Voters Matter crew, the New Georgia Project, the Florida New Majority, all of these organizations have been out doing incredible work. And to say that the burden to shift the texture of what's happening in relationship to the Congress and the presidency is on the, the backs of grassroots communities and not the folks that we have voted in to actually see that legislation through feels frustrating to me. What I feel certain of is that if the Democrats continue to prioritize bipartisanship, over actually executing the power that they have been given, that people literally risked their lives over the last few centuries and over the last few years to give them, then they will likely not be in a position to do that again. Um, and That's it's gonna be up to us to utilize those other tactics to be able to meet the needs, the material needs of our people. So I, what, what I need everybody watching and listening to understand, and part of the thing that we do on this show is what I call Schoolhouse Rock 2.0. Mm. This is Civics 101. <laughs> it is one thing to be pissed off. It is one thing to be angry. It's one yep. thing to be upset. It's one thing to say, damn it, what is Biden doing? Damn it, why is it Harris getting this stuff done? It's, it's real easy to do all of that. But I also know how to count. And if the system is set up right now that you ain't going to get a simple majority because two Democrats don't want to stop the filibuster, yes, then, the, then the reality is, as what Cliff said, as what Congressman Jim Clyburn said on, uh, on Friday, okay, that whole electoral count act or whatever, he was like, all right, since y'all say that's the thing, let's put some stuff in that. See, again, let me walk y'all walk y'all through 64, 65, 68. The bills were broken up. We don't want the bills to be broken up, but they were broken up. And if you got to get a piece of something That's right. versus right now you got nothing, then you do mm. that. But then like King, like Height, like Young, like Wilkins, like Marshall, like Snick, like Court, they then said, all right, we going to take this piece of chicken. But we want the rest of that damn chicken. And the sides, and the dessert, and the drink. We'll take that one piece right now. But we've got to have people who are listening and watching. You have got to make a decision today. What are you going to do? You got you to decide whether you're going to sit your ass at home, watch us talk about this, or you going to say, I'm about to call somebody. I'm going to send right. $5 uh, to the Movement for Black Lives. I'm going to send some money to Sherry Beasley's campaign in North Carolina and Val Demings in Florida and Kenyatta in Pennsylvania and Mandela in Wisconsin. You got a sister who's running in Ohio, okay? You got to make a decision, okay, what role am I going to play in this? Because guess what? They are planning. That's right. They are plotting. Whole bunch of y'all, especially some of y'all yakkers on YouTube, all y'all, y'all trash, this show, what we doing, but all y'all doing is talking about me. You ain't talking about how to organize and mobilize. Mm. Steve Bannon is. That's right. That's right. Okay, that, that's what they're doing. And so at some point, we're gonna need this generation to say, I got to put some skin in the game but I also mm -hmm. realize everybody who said they marched with King lied. 
You preached it. Come on. Because everybody didn't march with King. The one piece of the chicken. We need. We need all of the rest of the promise. And I think that's the point, right? It's like we've got. We've gotten this. This piecemeal reform before, right? We. We had a Voting Rights Act that then they literally just gutted until it's nearly meaningless and conceded those of us that are under right-wing control on the state level uh, just have to, you know, <laughs> say a prayer and do the best organizing we can do to try to live to fight another day. Um, and so I think you're right. I think, you know, we, the BREATHE Act is a perfect example of that. And you'll remember, Roland, that we proposed an omnibus bill that included everything in the kitchen sink around policing. Um, and then what we were... But you had a lot of people saying, ain't no black agenda. There's exactly. no black agenda. Exactly. Nobody exactly. wrote a black you know, agenda. Like 40-page document of policy demands that mm -hmm. led to the origin of the BREATHE Act. Not to mention a lot of the work that my comrades here on the call, on this, on this very night talking on your show have worked on for decades. Um, but we had an omnibus bill called the BREATHE Act. We've seen uh, what it looks like to then say, actually, let's start to piecemeal that with the, the People's Response Act, again, that, that Corey Bush is pushing. So, again, it's not that there's a lack of policy demands. The issue is, is if we only get one piece of the chicken, but we still have a two-party system that continues to fail us because one angle of it is using all, all means, whether it's legal or not, to consolidate their wealth and power on the GOP side, and then a Democratic Party that is stuck in a stalemate around bipartisanship on the other side, the people actually have to do more then, and I get that. Uh, but what is also real is that we need the folks that we're risking our lives to get in some of those elected seats on the Democratic Party side to have the actual gumption to follow through on the things that they know their constituents really, 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 really need and have been demanding, and not just demanding over the last few years since the movement for Black Lives has existed, but for as long as like COFO and all of the other organizations that have been fighting on the policy arena have been demanding for as long as Black people have been in this country. Ashley, Wood Henderson, look, look, Wood Henderson, look, uh, we ain't stopping. We're going to still keep swinging uh, mm -hmm. because you know what? The folk who came before us were now ancestors. They didn't stop. That's it. They didn't stop. Well, appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Love you much. Thanks a bunch. You take care. All right, folks, uh, got to go to break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we will have more Roller Martin Unfiltered Man. We got lots more to cover, y'all, uh, including uh, a couple of memoriams, one of them, the passing of the recently installed president of Delta Sigma Theta, Sorority Incorporated, who passed away uh, this morning. Uh, we also, of course, uh, have our black and missing uh, that we always do. Uh, we also will tell you about uh, several cases of police officers acting the fool, uh, being held accountable uh, for their actions, and a couple of things I'm going to uh, give you the information. Listen up, HBCU students, all HBCU students, if you are a junior or a senior, you can apply for this new scholarship. There are seven of them. They're $15,000 each. Uh, it's in partnership uh, with McDonald's and also it's honoring Alpha Phi Alpha. I'm gonna explain to you that the deadline is next month. Y'all, this is real. It's 15 grand. I'm explaining to you all the details and, and y'all are gonna get the first public look of my the cover of my book white fear i'm going to show it to y'all right here on roland martin unfiltered on the black star network don't forget support us y'all again ain't nobody else doing this i'm just letting y'all know right now ain't nobody else doing this okay and i know you got black news channel they ain't doing this okay but this is black owned and so we, we you know so we love black people we black people make everybody else stuff hot we made Clubhouse hot, man. We were downloading the Clubhouse app. 
But guess what? Let's let's see us have the same energy uh, for the Black Star Network app. So go to Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Roku TV, uh, Amazon Fire, Xbox One, Samsung. Download the app. You can also support us, uh, our Brina Funk fan club, by joining. Uh, our goal is to get $50 each from each one of our fans, averaging uh, $4.19 a month, $0.13 cents a day. There are people who have given less. Those who have given more, we appreciate it. Cash app, dollar sign, RM Unfiltered. PayPal, R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Sale is rolling at rollingatsmartin.com. Rolling at rollingatmartinunfiltered.com. All right, y'all. I'll be back in a moment. just about hurting black folk. Right. We gotta deal with it. It's injustice. It's wrong. I do feel like in this generation, we've got to do more around being intentional and resolving conflict. You and process. I haven't always agreed. Yeah. But we agree on the big piece. Yeah. Our conflict is not about destruction. Conflict's gonna happen. Aretha and I met as a result of a friend of mine named Ben Vereen. She was standing in the mirror in front of, you know, the lights go around the star mirrors mm -hmm. and dressed in white and getting ready to perform and she was standing up and she saw my reflection in the mirror and she gave a little, ah, you know, and I gave a little, ah. <laughs> <laughs> the mutual admiration. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. She expressed at that time that she wanted to, uh, she moved to California and she wanted to take lessons in acting. She wanted to do some acting. And I was, like I said, I teach. Right. You know, I was, I've been teaching for 12 years, you know. And uh, so I said, well, I teach acting. And if you want, come, come down to my classes. One evening, class was very disruptive. They were all at the window. You know, I gotta get back here, you know. Come on, we got a class, what are you doing? A limousine just pulled up. You know, a lady got out in a fur coat. <laughs> she walked into the class. And my first reaction was, you're late. <laughs> and you told the queen she was late. She was. You wouldn't let her know, I'm a teacher. I'm a, and I'm serious. And I think that's what she came to find out. Was I serious? And uh, I was. And so we became serious. Serious enough when you got married. That's as serious as it gets.
Hey, everybody, it's your girl, Lunell. So what's up? This is your boy, Earthquake. Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right, let's go back to the story that I was talking about. Uh, before we uh, lost power, uh, and that is a story out of Wichita, Kansas, where police officers and detention staff will not face charges after a teen dies in custody near Wichita, Kansas. In September, Cedric Lofton died at a hospital two days after the altercation at the Sedgwick County Juvenile Intake and Assessment Center. A December autopsy report contradicted an earlier preliminary finding that the teenager hadn't suffered life-threatening injuries. The autopsy ruled the death a homicide. Bennett says the state's stand-your-ground law prevents him from bringing any charges. Joining me now to discuss this is uh, this decision uh, by Sedgwick County DA Mark Bennett uh, is Andrew Stroth, the Lofton family attorney and managing partner of Action Injury Law Firm, and Marquette, Marquetta Atkins, the executive director for Progeny, an organization working to transform the juvenile justice system in Kansas, and also community activist Pastor Maurice Mo Evans, a powerful community church in Wichita, Kansas. Glad to have all three of you here. Uh, I need to understand here and this is the, one of the issues we have uh, Andrew with stand your ground so the DA is saying he can't bring charges because of stand your ground yeah I will tell you it's a stunning decision by a district attorney who has failed over the years to charge any law enforcement and and again the theory of stand your ground does not fit this scenario Cedric Lofton 17 year old teenager 135 pounds was unarmed did not present a threat and is put in the prone position and basically suffocated they took his breath away and they killed him and the district attorney is saying stand your ground it doesn't make any sense is not based on the theory it doesn't support the facts and the family and pastor maurice evans and others are asking for an independent special prosecutor to re-examine the objective evidence in this case. Uh, Pastor, what is that process to get uh, a special prosecutor? Uh, must the DA recuse himself? Does it come from the governor? How does that work? We're looking at uh, every option. Uh, apparently, the state of Kansas does not have the ability to, uh, by means of law, or, or so that we've been told that there's nothing, no provision within the law to allow him to be replaced, but there's nothing that stops him from assigning one, from volunteering. Mark Bennett has said that it would make him look bad and that he would not necessarily uh, be seen as competent or that he would be seen as incompetent if he were to assign a special prosecutor. We, we're not concerned with that. His, his, his efforts so far have not been adequate, and so we're looking at other options for possibly, hopefully, Department of Justice or some other way that we can get a special prosecutor assigned to this case, have it reopened, and charges filed, rather than saying no one's accountable. Um, this is the kind of thing that we have seen, Marquetta, in so many other states uh, that just makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, it, it is as if people have uh, the absolute right to shoot to kill and they have no consequences. Um, absolutely. Uh, I think society in this country is teaching us our kids are expendable and they're not. Cedric was a child. He was in a mental health crisis and he deserved to get the help that he needed. He did not deserve to go to JIAC. He did not deserve to come out of there dead. 
Um, and so we have to stop this trend of making it, making this uh, nation think that our kids are expendable because they are not. But I'm, I'm, so I'm trying to understand how the stand your ground law applies. Where did this actually take place? Was it inside the facility? He, it happened inside was, the facility, yeah. Yeah, it was earlier act interaction with the Wichita Police Department, but he was actually suffocated and crushed inside the juvenile intake center. And you can see on the video the stress and pressure that was put on Cedric. And, and let's be clear, they put Cedric in the prone position, face down, and that is a dangerous position and against policy, and it was for approximately 20 minutes. Okay, so, so, again, so how does... Okay, so I'm just trying to under... Okay, and this is what I'm trying to understand here. Um, okay, so these are... The, the individuals who did this, were, they work for the facility? Correct. Okay. Which means that they have procedures. That's right. So he is in... So he's face down. Yes. Are they saying that he was striking them, he was fighting them, he was beating them, he was biting them? What are they saying? You know, Pastor Mo, why don't you respond to that? Because the DA's report, Mark Bennett's report, is so disturbing that you got a young man not posing a threat that they basically killed. So Stand Your Ground makes no sense. And they interviewed the individuals at JIAC, and th even their own interviews don't indicate a threat. But Pastor Mo, I defer to you. Pastor, you there? Uh, I am actually, here. actually, we lost him. Uh, we, 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 I'm here. Okay, Pastor, you back? Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, the, the the whole thing has has been sophistry from the beginning. Uh, the reason why people uh, are concerned in saying, you know, this doesn't make any sense, is because there have been lies and miscommunications from the beginning. What we know is that he was actually held down. He was handcuffed. He was shackled. There were people at, there was a person at his feet. There was a person uh, sitting on his back. There was a person holding each arm. And so what we know is that uh, this happened for at least 45 minutes before they realized that he was unresponsive and, and unconscious. So uh, none of this makes sense. There is, I don't understand how four people have someone shackled, handcuffed, and they feel their life is in danger. Because that's a stand your ground, right? That that your life is in danger and, and right. it's an imminent threat. Where right. does that I mean, come from? I mean, that, 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 that means that my life is in danger, that somebody has done something to put my life in danger. And so what I don't understand is how you can be in a facility a person can't get out of. You have complete control of that person's movements, four people are holding him down, and it's stand your ground? They're holding a young person responsible for his murder. They're holding a 17-year-old <sighs> child in a mental health crisis responsible for his own murder. And Glenna Martinez, that runs the facility in a press conference yesterday, said that the staff did procedure, and if that is procedure, they grossly need to change that procedure, and it does not fit stand your ground. Um, question yeah. here, that is, um, all right, uh, is there any, 
Is there any call for the Department of Justice come in? Someone else? I mean, the state authorities to look into this? Anything? So far, the only thing that the city has done is issued a task force to take a look at the policies from beginning to end that led to Cedric's murder. And I'm going to keep on using the word murder um, instead of death. Um, but to me, that is not good enough. Um, somebody needs to be held accountable, specifically Mark Bennett, because he had the power to make this right. And the message that he's sending out is so critical, especially for young people who are already going through it, who are in mental health crisis. What is the message we're sending to these kids and their parents when they need help? Because who wants to call for help and risk their child being murdered and taken to the wrong facility instead of getting the help that they need because an officer feels threatened or because a, a staff that is supposed to be equipped to handle situations like this feels threatened? What is the message that we're sending to our young people? Uh, and, and that's right. And Roland, this happened back in September. So initially, they didn't release any of the footage. They did let the family finally come in and see the footage. They didn't, at the initial press conference, as Pastor Mo knows, the district attorney and the sheriff talked about a kid on drugs, on K2, uh, with a background. Well, thank God there was a medical examiner that gave an objective report that showed that these officials killed, suffocated, and took Cedric's breath away. So this doesn't stop here. The family is going to pursue all legal remedies while the community and, and our team are going to work together to try to get a special prosecutor. I mean, you just have to look at the independent evidence. And Mark Bennett has a track record of not holding people accountable. His 45-page report is nonsense. And, and we're going to move forward because the objective evidence um, supports that this kid was unjustifiably killed. Cedric. Lofton should be here today, and he's not because of the actions of those actors at that juvenile detention facility. Uh, that is absolutely a shame. They need folks, to be held accountable. Absolutely. Please keep us abreast uh, of how this case moves forward. Yeah, we Look. need an external audit, and I want to put that out there. We need somebody outside of Wichita to come in and view what's happening here, because there is no way, there is no way that this child should be murdered and his legacy be left in vain. And on top of that, we have to realize that these systems, these juvenile justice systems are not working. We need to They're be not. proactive in how we're dealing with our young people. And we need to do preventative measures to keep our kids from get, being incarcerated and going in jail. These systems are not working. Absolutely. And the county task force is not adequate because those are all people uh, who were a part of Mark Bennett's secret letter that he sent. Those were all people who have uh, been a part of supposedly protecting our young people and thus far have not been able to do so. So we definitely need, as Mark Marquita said, we need independent third-party oversight and there has to be accountability. We can't say nobody's responsible for this child's death. As a community, we're not going to stand for that. All right. All right. Folks, I certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Folks, let's go to Pennsylvania, where three Pennsylvania officers are charged with the fatal shooting of an eight-year-old girl at a football game. You might remember this story. Uh, Fanta Ability was shot in the crossfire of the officers and some teens. The bullets injured several others, including Fanta's sister. Officer Devon Smith, Sean Dolan, and Brian Devaney are charged with one count of voluntary manslaughter, one count of involuntary manslaughter, and ten counts of reckless endangerment. The teenagers were charged with murder, but those charges were dropped when it was discovered that the bullet that killed Fanta came 
came from an officer's weapon. Let's go back to our panel, Reese, uh, Dr. Greg Carr, and uh, Faraji Muhammad. Faraji, I want to start. Uh, okay, don't have Faraji. Let me know when he's back. I want to go, go to you, Reese. I remember when this happened, and this sounds very similar to the story out of Los Angeles where the cops were going into, uh, I think, the Burlington Coat Factory. A young girl was in the dressing room, uh, and uh, they, fire, they, they, they fire at the guy, and then she's in the dressing room and ends up getting hit. You know, this is where officers have to use proper discretion when they're firing their weapons when there are other people who are around. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I understand that there was a gunfight. If I understand correctly, there was a gunfight that initiated the officers coming to the scene. However, it's not like you're just in the Guns of Navarone here having a shootout like you're in the Magnificent Seven. You are in an actual community that has children around and other people. And so they have a duty to protect the, you know, the entire community and not just necessarily engage um, with the people who are firing off these rounds. So it's, it's incredibly tragic. Um, I'm glad to, to see that there's some accountability, but there just needs to be a sense of humanity and the people who are serving this, these communities and, and a, a duty um, of care that just isn't there. And we saw the same thing with the prior story too um, about Cedric and just the lack of duty of care a person who was going through a mental episode. I mean, these the, the people weren't responding to a crime. They're responding to a situation where a young, a young a, a teenager um, had an episode and he ends up, you know, not just dead, but in my opinion, brutally murdered. I mean, the length of time that he was um, uh, in a position was longer than even what we saw with George Floyd. And so there's, I mean, it's, it's hard to say reform systems when we know that's not necessarily happening, and we also know that it's the it's the lack of humanity, as Dr. Carl says. You know, this the statement "no humans involved" is what's really animating a lot of these folks in these cases. Um, this is again uh, beyond sad, Greg, but this is also why. Uh, look, I get it when you're in those situations, but officers must take care uh, and simply just can't be firing away uh, and in, they have innocent bystanders. And here's the deal: when a, remember, they charged the teenagers for it. So clearly you have laws to, you know, their errant gunfire kills this young girl. Now we know it's the cops. They should be charged. They should. And, and as always, Roland, you are taking the moral position. Um, and we are talking about a situation where there is no morality. Um, Reese just said it. I mean, NHI, no humans involved. And that is a phrase that Sylvia Winter used and talks about, the scholar Sylvia Winter. But she took it literally from the LAPD, who used that phrase, NHI, to uh, talk about when they would get calls in black and brown communities in Los Angeles. Oh, what? Oh, NHI, no humans involved. And in both those cases, there were no human beings involved. That child it's heartbreaking to see her there with that little crown and then the young man in the back and see this, these children. And then you realize that these killers, and that's what they are, they're killers, they're patterollers, they're hunters. Their first move, like they're in uh, an episode of Chicago PD uh, or, or, or Law and Order, is to empty their clip. There are no repercussions. And in the case, as, as Reese just said, of Kansas with Mark Bennett, that white nationalist who was just recently reelected, I think 2020 he was reelected, uh, you know, there are no repercussions. You can kill who you want. 
Now, the one thing that ties those two cases together is, you know, the defense, uh, the defense lawyer for uh, Smith, Dolan, and Devaney uh, is arguing that, uh, well, this had to do with violent criminals. So they got they can't put it on the 18 year old who they gave 32 to 64 months for his his uh, actions. They can't put it on the juvenile guy. And yeah, they shouldn't have been shooting. Of course, they shouldn't have been shooting. But when there are no humans involved, the script is to try to find one of these non humans to blame. And it worked in Kansas so far because they say that he continued to struggle and he resisted. So therefore, we're within the law to show restraint. The bottom line is this: they're going to keep killing us until we stop them. And the price has to be a life for a life. It does no good to march and say Black Lives Matter. You need to crucify the two United States senators from Kansas, Roger Marshall and Jerry Moran. They should be excoriated on the floor of the United States Senate. No matter what they're debating, someone should come in and say, you represent a lawless state where nobody's life matters. And until we start putting the kind of pressure on these white people in terms of a language they understand, they're going to kill us with impunity. Uh, how about this story here? The Missouri man has spent 43 years in prison for a crime he did not commit is filing a lawsuit. Kevin Strickland is a lawyer say the company said uh, his state contracts for prisons denied him proper medical care, outside referrals or treatments to his various ailments while incarcerated. The lack of medical treatment is why Strickland is confined to a wheelchair. He is requesting a jury trial and damages for his suffering. Uh, there needs to be more of these type of uh, suits because what we find for Roger that in some of these states would someone have been wrong wrongfully convicted, they don't even have the ability to actually uh, get paid from uh, the state. No, not at all. Not at all. And I, and I think that that's the other part about this whole conversation. Um, when we're looking at what just happened with, with little sister Fanta and just keep talking about all of these cases. I mean, like it was just reported about a little less than an hour ago, Brother Roland, that those three officers in Sharon Hill were, were all fired from the department. But it still doesn't bring the type of justice that, that, that the family is, is seeking and that the community needs right now. When we look at these cases, you know, people try to just dehumanize the fact that you lost a human being to something very senseless, to something that really could have been prevented. And I think that's one of the worst ways to transition from this space, from this world, is that you lost your life over something very senseless, especially when it comes to a child. So money is not enough. You know, I mean, it, it, even even if you say, okay, we're going to lock up the officers, but there's still some level of protection around them. You know, it's not enough now, and we gotta. And I think we gotta raise our voices and say it's not enough to just fire the officers. Well, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough. Look, it's not enough to fire officers, but also it's not enough to simply say to a brother who's here four to three years in prison, hey, sorry. Again, right. the bottom line is yes, m money cannot bring back. 43 That's years, right. money cannot bring back uh, a life. But the reality is, this is a capitalist society. Everything is based right. upon money. Some folks do need to pay up when these, these sort of things happen. Uh, folks, let's go to George, where one of the men convicted of chasing and murdering Ahmaud Arbery wants a new trial. Travis McMichael is serving life in prison without parole. He believes he deserves a new trial because the state did not have enough evidence for the jury to reach a verdict beyond a reasonable doubt. Yes, they did. <laughs> This is the standard uh, a retrial motion. It must be submitted within 30 days of a verdict. His punk ass ain't going nowhere, y'all. Uh, so he's going to be no. sitting in prison. So I guarantee you to say, oh, y'all have enough evidence. Yeah, uh, trust me, we did. We had your dumb ass testifying and we had video. Oh, by the way, he ain't steal nothing. 
Guess what? Sit your, sit your white racist ass in prison for the rest of your life and certainly hope Jamal uh, and uh, Pookie don't pay you a visit. All right, y'all. <laughs> Uh, we now know, visit. Right, look, bottom line, that's the deal. We now, know the, we now know the cause of death of legendary actor Sidney Poitier. The 94-year-old died of January 6th at his home in Beverly Hills. Poitier's death certificate says he died of heart failure. Also listed as underlying causes were Alzheimer's, dementia, and prostate cancer. Mm. Uh, he, of course, he was the first black man to win the Best Actor Oscar for his lead role in 1963's Lilies of the Field. Man, a sad story out of Georgia. A Talbot County probate magistrate judge, just 45 years old, was found dead in her home. Judge Cheryl Terry was found dead by her father on Wednesday in the home they shared. She was elected, folks, just in 2020 and followed in the footsteps of her father and predecessor, former Judge John Terry. She was the first female probate judge in Talbot County. The cause of death hasn't been determined. Authorities say there was no foul play in evident. Again, she was 45 years old and was very much a prominent member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. And speaking of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, uh, sad news for their members all across the world. Their recently installed uh, 27th National President, Cheryl Hickman, passed away this morning. Again, folks, she was just, uh, she assumed the position in November of this year. She had served the organization in a variety of capacities, including serving as National Vice President, National Secretary, Eastern Regional Director, South Atlantic Regional Representative. The sorority posted this statement on their Facebook page and sent it out to all of their members. It is with great sorrow that Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated shares the passing of our beloved National President and Chair of the National Board of Directors, Cheryl A. Hickman. President Hickman transitioned peacefully on January 20th, 2022, after recent illness. President Hickman was a devoted member of Delta Sigma Theta since 1982 and served in various capacities at the chapter, regional, and national levels before being elected national president. She's remembered not only for her role as a leader, but for being a colleague, friend, and most of all, sister. The entire sisterhood of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated mourns the loss of President Hickman. During this difficult time, we ask that you respect to her family's privacy and keep them in your prayers. All right, folks, uh, got to go to break. We come back. Uh, I'm going to share with you some information about a scholarship that I have uh, uh, announced announcing with McDonald's uh, honoring Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And you're going to get the first look, the first look of my book, White Fear, that is dropping in September of this year. We'll do that next right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network.
right, folks, so y'all see that I'm rocking the Tennessee State University shirt. Uh, you see, uh, of course, this is our HBCU segment. Uh, and uh, so, so here's the deal. Um, look, I was Texas A&M University. I'm a graduate. My brother is, so is my sister. Uh, but we understand the importance of HBCUs. And so there are many African-Americans who support HBCUs who didn't even go to them. Uh, and so um, I, 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 we did the, remember the project that we did in... Uh, we aired in December, we shot it in November in Houston with McDonald's uh, tied to the gospel uh, tour. So we were in Houston. If you want to see those interviews, go to the Black Star Network app or our YouTube channel. All the interviews are on there. It was amazing interviews. Uh, and so I was talking to the folks at McDonald's uh, and we were discussing, uh, they were talking about, you know, support of HBCUs and they said, hey, we want to do something with you, Roland. I said, okay, great. And they said, you know, it's the 115th anniversary of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated with December 4th, uh, founded December 4th, 1906. Uh, and they said, we want to do something to honor them. And I said, well, why don't we do this here? So why don't we do something unique? Let's honor our seven jewels, the seven founders of Alpha Phi Alpha. Uh, and let's give away um, scholarships. So they wanted to give away robust scholarships. So I said, hey, let's do seven. And they said that, uh, I said, but I don't want to make it just for alphas. I said, because and here's why. Uh, because I wanted us to be able to get a sense of, again, what the need is. And let me explain that. Uh, one of the biggest issues, and Greg can attest to this very much so, one of the greatest issues for college students, but especially HBCU students, is not them going to college is them being able to stay there. Being able, because typically most universities, especially HBCUs, there's a dramatic drop off from when students are freshmen and sophomores and when they become juniors and seniors because they don't have the money to stay. So here's what we did by partnering by, in, again, uh, working with Alpha Phi Alpha, where I'm a life member, uh, in honor of Alpha Phi Alpha, McDonald's is, is gonna do seven $15,000 scholarships specifically for HBCU juniors and seniors. Anytime we talk about scholarship money, typically it's for somebody coming out of high school. I specifically said to McDonald's, no, let's do this for the people who are already in college, but to keep them in college. I remember when Julia Malvo was president of Bennett College and she, she reached out to me. They were trying to raise like $30,000 to keep several of the young women in school who were graduating seniors. And uh, it happened several times and I've gotten other calls as well. So I said, hey, let's do this. And so, uh, so partnering with the Thurgood Marshall Fund, uh, you have this program, again, any student who's a junior or a senior who is attending an HBCU is eligible for this program. Now, the deadline, listen clearly, the deadline is February 28th, okay? February 28th. Again, junior or senior. Now, that means that if you are going to be a junior in the fall, you can apply for the scholarship. If you're going to be a senior in the fall, you can apply for a scholarship. If you are a senior now and you ain't graduating and you're coming back next year, you can apply as well. So again, uh, so what you do is you go, you go to tmcf.org, tmcf.org. That's the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. They're handling everything. They're doing all this sort of stuff along those lines. And also, here's the other thing. And again, y'all know how I feel about this here. The recipients also is going to be able to engage with McDonald's executives about uh, career opportunities in their field of study, things along those lines. And so I just want us to understand a lot of people and bring the panel up right now. A lot of people simply don't have the resources to stay. And that's important. And so that's why we did, did it this way. And so 
Again, I know there were some alphas who probably like, man, come on, bro, why don't you just make it for the alphas? No, because here's the piece. If all of a sudden, if all of a sudden we discover that we get 800 or 1,000 applications, then we now know what the need is. And so now we can go back to McDonald's and say, okay, we did seven this year. We did seven this year. Hey, now let's do 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, because now you know what the need is. And so that was the rationale behind it. And so that, that's, that's what we're doing there. I'm going to go to Greg. Greg, I'm telling you, people don't understand it. And look, you, you get it when those students, you know, they're there. They don't come back because they don't have the money to come back. That's the truth, Roland. I mean, I can speak from personal experience. The tuition was a lot lower when I started Tennessee State in 1983, but I worked my way through college. And I busted my ass those first couple of years to get the kind of grades to begin to piece together scholarships. And then when I got involved in student government, I got a student leadership scholarship. With my academic scholarship, it was enough. So I, I left with no debt and went on to law school with no debt. I had full scholarship to law school. That means everything. It's almost 50-50. Uh, public private HBCUs in the United States and 70% of the students who are HBCUs are Pell Grant eligible. $15,000 and that price point brother is a stroke of genius. That's enough. At a private school like Spelman or Howard, that's enough to put a dent in it and get you close, particularly if you're a junior or senior. And at a public school, I mean, the average tuition and fees, we're talking about what, less than, we're talking about maybe $14,000 for out of state and maybe around $7,000 for in-state tuition and fees. At a place like Norfolk State, it's going to cost you about $9,600 for a year tuition and fees. $15,000 when you're a junior or a senior, you know what that does finally? It reduces the four, five, six-year graduation rate. You're absolutely right. Students aren't finishing, and it isn't because of their grades. It's because they don't have the money, and it's somebody who worked their way through school, working at fast food, Arby's and Wendy's and places like that. McDonald's can afford to do 700 or 7,000 and 15,000 dollars could be the difference between a college degree and continuing to move and say, damn, if I just had a little bit more, that, that that's the perfect price point, brother, in my, in my opinion. This is, this is also why, Reese, uh, I mean, over the years, I've talked about this a lot when we talk about scholarships and, and most scholarships that they give typically are for high school students to go to four year institutions. I have been encouraging people to change the criteria for scholarships to also qualify for two-year institutions, uh, community colleges, because again, if someone, uh, that's, that's still college. And, and I get the focus on four-year institutions, uh, but it typically, typically leaves out a lot of people who, who can't afford to go to a four-year school, but they would love to be able to have a scholarship to go to a community college. And so, again, it's just thinking about how we provide scholarships in a different way. So I appreciate McDonald's uh, uh, agreeing with that because, again, we could have easily said, hey, graduating high school senior, but that does nothing for that kid who's already in college but can't stay. That's right. Yeah, also we have to think about, you know, the amount of support that um, black students in particular have going to college. You have a lot of parents, you know, middle class parents who might be able to get you through the first year, maybe even the second year. But by the time you hit 22, 23, that, that help is, has run out. Maybe people have had a kid or gotten pregnant or, you know, had other things in life that might have you know, set them a little bit off the path to where $15,000 could really make a huge transformative impact in their ability to continue their education. So this is something that really does meet a gap in the need by focusing on a population that typically you don't start to get 
eligibility at that point. You have to really get in. Maybe if you're a freshman, you get a four-year scholarship or a two-year scholarship, but not a lot of people are meeting that need. So I think it's a wonderful move that you push for and that McDonald's is providing. Um, and it doesn't mean, Faraji, that we don't encourage corporations that get a lot of our money as consumers not to support uh, those folks who graduated from high, from high school, but it's also thinking differently. And again, what I really hope, I hope uh, a bunch of our students apply and again, that was one of the data points. That was one of the data points that I said to out to the alphas. I said, look, brothers, I know I know y'all may want this to only go to alphas. I said, but no, we need to have the data. If all of a sudden we have 700 students who apply for uh, these seven scholarships, now we're able to understand in terms of moving forward. Now all of a sudden, it may not just be, okay, sure, can McDonald's fund all 700? Sure, but what if we also now have that data to be able to say, all right, let's go to nine other corporations and say, all right, each one of, each one of you do 10 each, uh, or do you, each one of you do 50 each, to be able to, 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 to provide these sort of resources. I'm telling people all the time, if you don't have the data, all you're doing is just guessing. No, you're absolutely right, Brother Roland. And I think that that's the data, and that's what Dr. Carl Reese are talking about. I mean, we all know it. I, I, I'm a product of community college. You know, when I decided, I, it took me five years after I left high school to decide to go back to school. And then my first step was toward you know, Baltimore City Community College. Then from there, I went to a four-year university to complete that part of my education. But it's necessary. You know, I'm always telling students, you know, make sure that you don't, you know, you exhaust every option. Community college is not something you should be ashamed of. Getting, um, going to an HBCU is not something you should be ashamed of. But more importantly, look, these companies that, you, that you're working with, and I'm glad McDonald's is on board with this initiative, they, they, they should be on board like a lot of other companies, because why? You're cultivating your next generation of, of innovators and thinkers. You know, every time you work at McDonald's, and you know, I always tell people this, you, you might say, oh, working at McDonald's is so terrible. But McDonald's has a very rigid management program. They have a very rigid uh, franchise ownership program. I mean, all of those things. And so when we're talking about investing, these companies should invest in black students. They should invest into the future of black students each and every day. And look, what we hope is that once we get this first batch of students involved in this, getting those scholarships, let's just work. We'll come right back to it and get another batch of students. This thing has to keep going. But it's a real blessing because why? You're behind it. And by you being behind it, you know that it's going to be an authentic program. It's not going to just, the money is not going to just sit somewhere it's going to be given to somebody. And I just can't wait to see the students or hear about the students that are going to be um, the recipients of this. But this is more than even $15,000 shit, man. I wish I had that when I was in school. <laughs> I'm telling you, I <laughs> I'll be all good. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely, absolutely. But, but, you know, I mean, every, every little bit helps. And you know what? Maybe this will start the process real quick. Maybe this will start the conversation that college is absolutely like terribly high. Oh, it's crazy. It becomes a crazy debt yeah, when yeah. you're paying fifty and sixty thousand dollars a year yep. for college. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And can I say one more thing, yep. Carlin? I just want to say, you know, sometimes people hear the number and they say, well seven, 
I don't have a chance of getting that apply anyway, because as Roland is saying, your applying right. might open the door for the next round of people. And so it's important that regardless of whatever calculation you're doing in your mind about your GPA or whatever the, the materials are that is going to be the rubric for deciding who gets it, still apply because it's important to open up the doors for more than just yourself. And you might get it. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, might get it. Absolutely. So, uh, as they say, the easiest way not not to get any of the money is if you don't apply. Just like we say, <laughs> hell, if you don't vote, guess what? You got no say-so in democracy. All right, I'm going to go to a break. We're going to play for you all uh, our promo of our Glenn Terman interview. We're going to live stream the interview after we finish today's show. We, we, we debuted it last night, Rolling with Roland. Let me tell you all something. It, it is an unbelievable interview uh, with Glenn Terman. Uh, look, he has been acting for more than 50 years. He is a legend. He is an icon. The stories are amazing. And one of the reasons that we're doing uh, these one-on-one these -on -one interviews uh, with folks like Glenn Terman and is because, you know what? We don't want to just hear about them when we're doing an in memoriam. We want to hear from them uh, while they're here, telling their story, listening to them in their own words. And so uh, we kicked this thing off with Johnny Gill. Of course, we talked, the second one was Richard Lawson. Uh, we have Glenn Terman. Man, the interview's coming up next. Bill Duke, Jack A., Jeffrey Osborne, Michael Collier, Mario Van Peebles, Sally Richardson Whitfield, Dondre Whitfield, Maddie Rich. Uh, man, we've got some unbelievable interviews that we have done. And trust me, uh, Glenn Terman says some amazing stuff, and so we're going to show you the promo. We're going to stream it after that, and when we come back from this break, it's two minutes, I'm going to show you the book cover. Uh, you get to, you, you're, the, you're the first ones to see it. I have not put it on social media. I have not placed it anywhere. You're going to get the first look of this book cover, and I'll tell you exactly what the book is. The, the, the half the title is called White Fear, but you're going to see that next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Aretha and I met as a result of a friend of mine named Ben Vereen. She was standing in the mirror in front of, you know, the lights go around the star mirrors, mm -hmm. and dressed in white and getting ready to perform. And she was standing up and she saw my reflection in the mirror. And she gave a little, ah, you know, and I gave a little, ah. <laughs> <laughs> a mutual admiration. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. She expressed at that time that she wanted to, uh, she had moved to California and she wanted to take lessons in acting. She wanted to do some acting. And I was, like I said, I teach. Right. You know, I was, I've been teaching for 12 years, you know. And uh, so I said, well, I teach acting. And if you want, come, come down to my classes. One evening, class was very disruptive. They were all at the window. You know, I gotta get back here, you know. Come on, we got a class, what are you doing? A limousine just pulled up. You know, a lady got out in a fur coat. <laughs> she walked into the class. And my first reaction was, you're late. <laughs> and you told the queen she was late. She was. You wouldn't let her know, I'm a teacher. I'm a, and I'm serious. And I think that's what she came to find out. Was I serious? And uh, I was. And so we became serious. Serious now when you got married. That's as serious as it gets. All 
right, here we go, folks. Time for the big reveal. Y'all have heard me talk a lot uh, over the years about white fear, uh, what we are seeing in America right now. And, it, and it's not all white Americans. But what we have to understand that what is happening in America right now, this, this shifting of the demographics and this shifting of really this notion of what America is. Greg Hart talks about it all the time in terms of uh, this settler. Uh, what's the phrase you use, uh, Greg? Settler colony? Yeah, settler colony turned into a settler state. That's and, right, and, right. And, and, and folks don't quite understand, don't, don't really sort of look at that. The reality is that America has been defined through a white prism. If you actually read history, white male prism, it was not supposed to be for Reese to be able to vote, not because she's black, also because she's a woman. That was not. It was intended for folks who only owned land. That was how this was set up, okay? And so when you begin to look at what's happened in terms of these battles that we're having now, it's because we're seeing a redefining of what it means to be an American. And that's what's struggling with folks. And so when we talked about Colin Kaepernick when he took a knee, okay, all the people like, man, that's not American. Actually, it is. The First Amendment is called the first for a reason. Guns were second, but the, the ability to be able to protest was first. So it wasn't him protesting. It was the fact that Colin Kaepernick simply did not uh, grow up and, and, and completely suck in the notion that America is all about apple pie. It's all about a blonde, blue-eyed, buxom white woman as being the center of beauty in America. It wasn't about everything that is white is right, everything that uh, black is, uh, is bad. It's what it was about. And so what you're seeing now is this struggle because now black people and Latinos slash Hispanics and Asians, Native Americans, now get to actually have a say. And not just a say, now have power. And so this is not even directed at white conservatives. It's even directed at white liberals because many of them struggle with black folks having a seat at the table. Hollywood has a serious problem with that issue as well. And so all of this uh, culminates, and this started, y'all, uh, with in 2009, there was a study that was done that asked the question, are you optimistic about the future of America for your children? And mm. every and every group, blacks, Latinos, Asians, every group, a majority said yes. Only mm. one group, less than a majority, said no. White mm. Americans. In September 2016, the question was asked, are you optimistic about the future of America economically for the next 10 years? That was in 2016. Every group, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, majority says absolutely, even though black people, lowest wealth in the country, had the mm. highest optimism. Wow. Who knows? Second lowest wealth, highest optimism. White Americans, greatest wealth in America, lowest optimism so you got to say mm -hmm. hold up how y'all got how y'all got more money than everybody else but you got less optimism than everybody else because they will have to share mm. their children will now have to compete 
Mm. It can't. Everything is just not. I'm born. I'm white. I get the job. No, yeah. you, you, you got to present some credentials now because you know what? The person who's deciding may not look like your daddy. Ooh. That is the basis of Ooh. the book that I have been speaking on. I had that has been cultivating here for the last 13 years. And this you can see for the first time is the cover of this book called White Fear. White How the browning of America is making white folks lose their minds. Now, if you look at the image, there were a lot of images that we chose. We purposely chose uh, an image um, of, the, of, of the January 6th um, insurrection. And if you see, if you, now you see that the guy in the foreground, you see how he has his hands uh, uh, wide open. Yep. The reason I want, I chose that photo because one, he symbolizes the notion of all of this is ours. Woo. Uh -huh. That's why we chose that. And so Leah Lakins uh, is a writer. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny, we were on the call, and uh, you know, because Leah normally is done, she's ghostwritten many other books. And I was like, no, nah, you ain't gonna be no ghostwriter with me. I ain't scared to put your name on a book. Uh, and, so, uh, and so she and I have been working on this uh, for the past uh, two and a half years. Uh, ben Bella Books is an independent publisher out of Dallas. That's who we are publishing this book with. Uh, and so it is gonna drop September uh, of this year. Uh, we're going through the editing process right now. And uh, it's not a book, not just, the book is not just speaking to white Americans. It's speaking to everyone because many of us, uh, Reese, don't fully comprehend and understand. And keep in mind, folks, the other reason why this photo was chosen, remember, Donald Trump specifically targeted Atlanta, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Milwaukee as the basis of his big lie that the election was rigged and stolen, and those are four black cities. Reese. Well, first, let me say congratulations, and I think the cover is magnificent. I mean, what a brilliant encapsulation of really what white fear is, and not just white fear, but white lash the backlash to what is inevitable that they will have to share. They're going to make it more difficult, and they're putting up a valiant fight to, to, to pre prevent that from happening, perhaps even this generation. But the demographics are not going to lie. It's not going to be something they can hold off forever. And so I think it's a really important piece of work. And I think we have to understand what we're up against, because I think a lot of people still feel like you can reason with them, you can appeal to some sort of shared humanity and shared sense of morals and character, and you can't. So the best thing that we can do is arm ourselves with the information. How do we maneuver around it? And I think that we're all mostly trained in that because you have to do that to survive um, and to really understand how we're going to come up with our game plan, how we're going to respond to this in a way that we can harness our power quicker despite all of the roadblocks that they're going to put up. So congratulations again, Rowan. I love it, love it, love it. Um, you know, Faraji, first of all, Reese, I appreciate that, Faraji. Um, yeah. You know, you know we, we spend a lot of time on this, uh, trying to walk people through this so they understand the dynamics here. And we, when, when we've been talking about 
these policy changes, making sure uh, that they put on those young, white, right-wing conservatives on the Supreme Court. Do understand, Amy Coney Barrett is 49. Neil Gorsuch is 53. Um, Kavanaugh is 55. Mm -hmm. Ginsburg was 87 when she died. Breyer is mm -hmm. 82. So mm. if just if, if you just say that, look, they they serve they serve thirty five more years. Think about that. That means that Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett will, will be there thirty five more years. Damn. Twenty fifty seven. Damn. See, and people have to understand that's why Mitch McConnell was hell bent on keeping those seats and getting them in because they understand when you control the Supreme Court, they are the final arbiter of our laws. That's right. No, that's a, that's, that's a big point. I'm so glad, Brother Roland, that you brought it up. First and foremost, of course, congratulations. I mean, I'm absolutely in love with the cover. I'm in love with, the, with, with everything, like the title, the subtitle, and everything. Um, it brings back to mind so many different books that I've come across such as Death of the West, um, when you're talking about even um, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. There's a number of books out there, and I'm so happy that you're putting this out there as a black man to talk about this, because a lot of those books are really to white people. Even though you said this is for everybody, I think it's absolutely important that we understand as black people the, the, the dynamics and the thinking um, and which is which is really important. A couple of questions for you, Brother Roland, because folks have been asking on the YouTube chat. First, will we be able to pre-order the book? Yeah, the book the book will be a pre-order. It's not available right now. Uh, they literally right. just sent me the email today uh, of the cover, uh, and they said I can go ahead and post it. And so, soon as uh, we do pre-order, we want to make that possible. And uh, and and again, uh, look, my goal, and when I look at all these books that are on the New York Times, bestseller list and everything. You know, I want us to go hard uh, and hit 50,000 pre-orders. I think, I think when, the, when the 1619 Project, I think when they debuted uh, number one on the New York Times bestseller list, I think it was like 87,000 books that were sold uh, that yeah. first week. Uh, and so, wow. uh, and so uh, you know, with, with our fan base, you know, we, we want to go hard uh, on Amazon's list, on New York Times uh, bestsellers list. Because you know, because let's, let's be real clear. It's going to be a whole bunch of mainstream media folk not trying to put me on their shows. You know Fox News ain't going to be calling. No. And we know CNN not going to be calling. Uh, and so... Uh, MSNBC. Yeah, well, you know, MSNBC, well, look, I, I got, Ali Vell, she will call me. I'll be on Tiffany Cross show next week. Uh, but again, it, it, it seems like the only time I, I, I appear on MSNBC is only on weekend shows. Ali Velshi, Tiffany Cross, uh, uh, Alex Witt, uh, no other shows have uh, invited me. I've never been on Joanne Reed's show. I've never been on Chris uh, uh, Hayes' show. I've never been on Rachel Maddow's show. Uh, did Lawrence's show one time. And so I used to do the daytime shows, Morning Joe, Katie Turr, all those shows a lot. Uh, they don't call at all anymore. So I guess I'm only relegated to the weekend. Uh, but so Matthew, can I let me ask you this, though, Brother Roland, and this is another question that popped up. You know, I mean, because books of this caliber, of this nature, of this content is such hotly contested because we're in a time of critical race theory and everything else, you know, what, what, what's your take on 
um, you know, presenting this book into per certain parts of the country, your home state like Texas, are you are you are you having like a plan of action? Oh, 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 we go, we going boycott to you and all that. No, 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 no. I ain't worried about that. I ain't worried about that. Uh, I ain't worried about that at all. I mean, I had to ask the question. No, no, I ain't worried about that at all. Trust me, I plan, <laughs> I, I plan, I plan on going back to my alma mater, the conservative Texas A&M University, uh, and discussing this book. I plan on being on college campuses. Uh, trust me, the Roro Mobile is going to be uh, on the road. We're going to be hitting places. Remember, we're also going to be involved in going to places during the election. Uh, so we're going to awesome. be on the road anyway, hitting these states. Uh, we're going to be doing that. Uh, but absolutely. And, and the thing that, that's crazy, been crazy about this process, Greg, is that uh, this thing has been like I've been amping to do it because every time something happened, uh, white fear kept showing. And even, even the publisher was like, OK, is another event. And I'm like, and it was so it was a trip because when uh, back in literally 2018, 19, 20, I kept saying, y'all, the book is playing out before our very eyes. Now, mind you, it's a whole bunch of publishing houses that passed on the book because they didn't see it. I'm like, I'm okay. Ben Bella out of Dallas, they saw it. They believed in it. And we've already signed a deal with Audible as well. And the thing that people don't understand is that, I mean, it was literally happening in real time. And I kept saying, see, every time something happened, I was like, see, they like, damn, we got to get the book out. And it was sort of like a new thing. And so when January 6th hit, we had to completely recalibrate the book because after that happened, and so uh, it, so everything that I we we talked about on this show on TV One when I was on Tom Joyner, all these things are playing out, and the book lays this thing out and establishes that continuum from going going back to, of course, uh, slavery, Civil War, and how at every point black success was always be followed by white backlash. Greg, yes, sir, yes, sir, um, and you know everything happens in divine order. You, uh, I remember 2010. Was it 2010 when you uh, when you published uh, the first with Third World Press? Uh, yes. That, yeah, 2010. <laughs> uh, the first President Barack Obama's Road to the White House. Yep. Yeah, and, and I think something that that this book will share with the first is that it is being reported out by somebody who is in deep, immersive conversation, contact with, organizing with the people. And with all due respect to the New York Times bestseller list, uh, we know that the books that are published uh, by the Fox crew, Brian Kilmeade and them, that's propped up by billionaires and these, and yep. these, you know, the same kind of people that will be trying to put money in McMichael's account in Georgia, which is why I'm glad the Georgia uh, prosecutor filed that addition to sentencing saying, so y'all can't profit off y'all stuff. So we know where those numbers come from. And in the case of the 1619 Project and my friend Ibram Kendi's books and, and Robin D'Angelo and all those, we know that a lot of that sales is driven by, you know, white guilt and white folks who may use the books as furniture, to, to quote Dr. Ben, Joseph Ben Yankee. <laughs> In fact, during the reckoning summer, so many black bookstores shipped books or, 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 or had books. White people bought books at the black bookstores and the books literally sat in the bookstores, meaning they never even picked up the books. So so we know that those numbers are driven. But your numbers will be driven by black people who are going to read and black people you've been talking to. And of course, Leah, La Leah Lakins is, is a proven entity. She has a track record and, and a good and a sister, black woman. And in partnership, you creating this 
is organic, meaning, you know, we have a saying in the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations, building for eternity. This is a slow build, mm. and we're all going to push it. You know, the, the thing I do with Karen Hunter on narrative and, and on the weekends in class, we're going to hold that book up to the screen, and Black people are going to read, and other people are going to read. They're going to read the Absolutely. book, and then that slow build continues to build momentum. And then I'll just end with the cover and add my congratulations to, to, to Risi and, and to Faraji. That cover is perfect, mm. and it, one of the things that strikes me is the, the the distribution of the flags. Because what you didn't do uh -huh. is show the Confederate flag. You, there's an American flag on the Capitol. The guy's got his hands open. On the right, there are flags. It's like one of them is upside down in distress. On the left, there are flags. And dead center is one with the 13 colonies. Meaning what? Come on. They think they're having a revolution. They are taking their country back. And guess what? There are plenty of people in that building they're looking at who are in absolute agreement with them because it's the same damn flag. That is a brilliant cover, brother. So we're looking forward to roll out white fear. These numbers are gonna gonna escalate and explode because they are real numbers, not not inflated invented numbers. And we're gonna we certainly gonna break that thing down. Uh, as well. And so, again, I will let y'all know when it's time to pre-order the book, uh, but I wanted y'all to see first uh, mm. that cover. I haven't put it on social media. I'll do it after the show. I'll go ahead and post it. Uh, but I wanted uh, the Roland Martin Unfiltered Black Star Network family uh, to see uh, it first. Uh, and, and again, when I say how this thing is just continuing, it is continuing. I, I didn't read this story earlier, uh, but the black DA in Atlanta, uh, she wants a special grand jury to investigate former President Donald Trump's alleged election interference. Uh, according to the letter sent to the chief judge of Fulton County Superior Court, DA Fannie Willis says her office has information of possible criminal disruption in the state's 2020 election. She wants a grand jury to examine the evidence and compel witnesses to testify. Several witnesses have refused to cooperate without a subpoena. She opened her investigation about a year ago after a recording revealed Donald Trump demanded Georgia Secretary of State find enough votes to flip the state in his favor. And so uh, I'm telling y'all, the thing is happening uh, right before our very eyes. Okay, uh, last, last before uh, we go, I'll be remiss uh, if we did not uh, extend our condolences to uh, Greg and his brother, uh, uh, Reverend Jeff, and the whole family on the passing of his 93-year-old mother, uh, Catherine Hayes Carr. Uh, of course, uh, you know, they wouldn't be who they are without Mama Carr doing what she did, uh, and she passed away. Uh, and so we wanted to certainly, this is the family photo uh, that uh, Jeff posted, uh, the photo there uh, with her and the whole crew. Uh, and so uh, we wanted to definitely uh, just extend our thoughts and prayers uh, to you, Greg, and the family. Appreciate you, Baba. Yeah, you know, 93 is a good run, and you're absolutely right. No her, no us. And she's with her husband now, back with her mother and father. She continues to rise. This little, this little date we have that we mistake for all of life is just a little pass-through from eternity to eternity. And so... Come on. Um, There'll be some tears, there'll be some sorrow, but that's pretty much residue, because every time I feel like I want to tear up, I see her and I hear her saying, come on now, I raised you better than that. I ain't going nowhere. In fact, she louder in my ear now than she was when she was <laughs> So it, it's a celebration, brother, and I just want to thank you for being uh, for being who you are, and Reese and Faraji, and everyone, Erica, everybody involved in Black Star, and everybody out there. It's just a powerful reminder that... Uh, we're only here for a second. And if we believe what we say we believe, 
then we know that uh, two people came together and created every one of us. So when you hear my voice, you're really hearing my mother's voice. When you hear Roland's voice, you're really hearing his mother and father's voice. When you hear Reese, when you hear Faraji, you're hearing two other people. And now Reese got a little girl. Faraji got his children. Me and Roland got our nieces and nephews. And you see a bunch of them there. That's that's how it continues. But the, but all of our people, except that little handful of us in this little reality right here, all our people are in eternity. So we can call on them anytime now. So thank you, brother. I love you, man. Thank you so much for raising her name. I was certainly appreciate. Hey, Doctor Card, can I ask you a quick question? Did you did your mother oh, see you on the show? Man, you know what's so funny? You asked for Raji, my sister Gussie, and brother-in-law Randy, who took point. She was in Houston, as you know, these last couple of years. She's in Nashville, and that picture was taken Thanksgiving. We were hauling home in Nashville. My sister would play us for her. So mm, wow. She was on Thursday, so one of the last things she heard on this side before she took it back over was these conversations. So, th th yeah, for, for, just know that my mom was listening, y'all, <laughs> every week. So I appreciate that. Man. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you, uh, it's a whole bunch of uh, black mamas and daddies uh, out there who are, who are doing the same. Uh, I get the emails when I'm traveling. I run into them. Uh, Mustafa hit me up and he was like, he like, hey, man, uh, matter of fact, I, I'm just going we gonna, to we leave on this one because y'all going to crack up when I tell you this here. Mustafa sent me. I'm, I got to give him a shout out. He said, uh, where is it? Where is it? He said, uh, Miss Carrie at the Lowe's in Clinton, Maryland, yes, says hi, and she watches all the time, and this is what happened. He texts me, this is on Sunday. Mustafa said, just got moved to the front of the line at Lowe's <laughs> because as the, uh, as the lady said, I love that Roland Martin show. So, uh, <laughs> so just so y'all know, uh, and Rashad Robinson used to tell me, he was like, man, I don't know what it is about the black people at the grocery store. He said, but when I'm in Harlem <laughs> shopping, I get stopped all the time. Folks like, man, ain't you that, that boy who on Rolling Show? Uh, and so y'all, don't, don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. Y'all, all these blue check marks on Twitter, they might be retweeting something that Don Lemon or Joy or Chris Cuomo used to say, uh, Jake Tapper and all them other folks. Uh, but trust me. Uh, we know what, what the brothers and sisters are watching, uh, and they make it clear when they walk up to me, y'all, and this happened multiple times, where they put cash in my hand. They say, look, I ain't trying to mail it in. They put cash in my hand. And I know some of y'all been emailing me. Uh, we're getting a P.O. box for y'all to be able to, to re start sending your checks and money orders, because y'all keep telling me, look, I don't trust no cash app, PayPal. I got you. <laughs> So we'll have the we'll have we'll have the PO box soon. Uh, that's why I haven't been given the address. And so, folk like I know some of y'all old school with money orders and checks. Uh, we appreciate that. Uh, and so again, uh, we're gonna have that real soon. So uh, we appreciate it. Uh, again, condolences to the Carr family, uh, and uh, we certainly appreciate it. Uh, Reese, Faraji, Greg, thank you so very much, uh, folks. That's it for us. Sorry about the power outage. It it, it broke the show up. Uh, but look, we still here. Uh, and again, why do we need your support? Y'all think I'm joking? I sent the emails when we were in that break to the engineers to get a backup source uh, so we don't get knocked off li line again like that. Uh, your dollars make it possible for us to be able to do that. Yes, yes, we're, tr yes, we're working on uh, closing a deal with McDonald's to be a sponsor. You see the Verizon ads, uh, but trust me, your resources, 
when you send that money to Cash App, when you send that money to PayPal, that's what's paying for producers and equipment and audio is paying for video, is paying for a new video playback machine, a new computer, uh, new monitors, all that sort of stuff. And so we appreciate it. Cash App is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is Roland at RolandSMartin.com, Roland at RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Uh, and of course, uh, you please, Tell everybody, download the Black Star Network app. We've crossed 20, 25,000 downloads. We want to hit 50,000, 100,000, a quarter of a million. Uh, and so please do so. Uh, we're on all platforms, Apple phone, Android phone, Android TV, Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, Xbox, and Samsung Smart TV as well. Shout out Dr. Glenda Glover, president of uh, Tennessee State University, also international president of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Uh, and so I'm rocking this shirt today. Don't forget, HBCU students, the deadline is February 28th. Go to tmcf.org and apply for one of those seven $15,000 scholarships. McDonald's is partnering with me and Alpha Phi Alpha to provide uh, to keep junior and seniors in college. Uh, we'll remind y'all that every single day. Y'all take care. I will see y'all tomorrow. Ha! Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good, because every year dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them, but with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly, so get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council.